My major pain has, has been invisible. The mobility aid makes it better. It gives me freedom. It can get to the core beliefs we have about ourselves. Don't ever think you're alone. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Zach about kidney failure, living on dialysis, and a subsequent kidney transplant. Zach's kidney failure happened when he was 29 years old, at a point in his life when he was a youth pastor in a Christian megachurch. He had been slowly experiencing kidney failure for years, and in fact, because his kidney failure was caused by a congenital birth defect, he had actually been experiencing symptoms, mysterious symptoms, throughout his entire childhood. Whenever these symptoms would pop up, his family would encourage him to go in his room and pray the symptoms away because he was raised in a religion that valued faith healing and would actually look down upon someone who went to the doctor. As his kidneys were failing, he was essentially dying, and he went into a naturopath out of desperation who took a look at his blood pressure and said, you need to go to the doctor immediately. He went to the doctor, and they were shocked that he had walked in on foot because he only had a third of his blood volume and was in complete renal failure. Zach will tell us about being on dialysis for years and about how he couldn't urinate because his body was storing all of his liquids since his kidneys weren't working, and he would go through dialysis, which is the process of filtering all of his blood synthetically since his kidneys couldn't do it anymore. He'll also tell us about the search for a transplant donor and his subsequent kidney transplant and how all of this completely changed the course of his life. He left the church and embarked on a transformation that is still continuing to this day. So you are in for a real treat on the podcast today. Zach and I are actually real life friends, and this was such a joy. I was able to have him over to my apartment and do this conversation in person, which is always so much fun, something I don't get to do very often on this podcast. And not only is Zach's story really incredible, you know, what he's lived through is absolutely fascinating, but he did a really, really great job explaining all the details of what he was going through, uh, through his kidney failure and subsequent kidney transplant. I mean, I learned an insane amount. What doctors can do to keep someone alive whose kidneys have failed is really remarkable. And of course, the transplant process itself is, is kind of a miracle, the fact that this is even possible. And on top of that, having this whole story be wrapped up in this, you know, um, personal journey that Zach embarked upon, becoming disillusioned with the megachurch that he was a part of, leaving the church and searching for meaning through everything he had experienced, the way he sort of integrated all of this back into his life. And, you know, it, he's such an introspective person, a fascinating guy, and it made for just, just an absolutely fantastic episode. I'm thrilled to share it with you today. We're going to get to it in just a couple minutes. It's a long episode, so I'm going to try to keep my introduction brief today. I did get a comment on Instagram that I wanted to share with you. This is on our episode a couple weeks back with Sarah, who had an adverse reaction to the anthrax vaccine. Uh, this comment is from Some Things Matter. Sarah has gone through a lot. She's so well-spoken and really knowledgeable. Thanks for presenting this issue with so much respect and nuance, Jesse. It certainly changed my mind about some things. And I really appreciated this because I, I put so much time into trying to present that episode in as balanced a way as possible, trying to give you some background information about this program to vaccinate all military service members against anthrax during the Clinton presidency. 
Um, so yeah, I did a ton of research. I found a bunch of articles on the government's own website, and I ended up putting that episode out a day late because I just couldn't finish my introduction in time. So, um, so yeah, I really appreciated that. And this comment's actually from someone that we will be talking to on the podcast very soon. Uh, I recorded an interview with them recently, and it uh, was really, really fantastic. So I'm really excited to share that with you soon, and I really appreciated this comment on Instagram. I have to thank those of you who are going above and beyond to support this podcast. Thank you so much to our community of listeners who are supporting the show financially on Patreon. Uh, that is so incredibly appreciated. We have three tiers of support, the $2 supporter tier, the $7 patron tier, and the $25 producer tier. Each tier comes with different levels of recognition and gifts. And I have to say thank you so much to our Patreon producers, Chris Fowler, Steve Cavanaugh, Trish O'Brien, Ensign Q, and Hipster Leia. Thank you so much for your continued support. For everyone who supports the show on Patreon, Andy and I will be sitting down to record our monthly bonus episode for the month of August that will be happening within the next couple of days. There has been a lot happening in our lives, and I'm sure we will give you the full scoop on the next bonus episode on Patreon. Thank you so much to everyone who supported this podcast by signing up to participate in research studies and surveys through Rare Patient Voice. You can be paid for having a chronic illness. You can be paid for your time to participate in research studies and surveys with any sort of diagnosis or if you are a caregiver. So check out that link in the description of this episode for Rare Patient Voice. We've had a several people sign up and everyone who signs up, they kick back a little bit to the podcast. And that's been really awesome. This whole new uh, stream of income that is helping to support the podcast. So if you are interested in being paid for your time, helping the community of people with your disease and supporting this podcast, check out that link, rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast. As always, I will remind you that my guests and I are not medical professionals. Please do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting with your doctor. And with that, let's jump into our super, super awesome episode with my friend Zach about living through kidney failure. Zach, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm like very excited to be here. And yeah. I just sounded like I was a valley girl from California because I said, I'm like so excited to be here. I won't judge you. Okay, good. I'm from California. I am a valley girl That's, from California. I love it. Perfect. Yeah. And I have nothing against valley girls. They were my crush growing up for yeah. sure. <laughs> so this is the first time in a long time that I've been able to have a guest uh, besides Andy here in the apartment I with me. It. So exciting. Very excited. Yeah. And we are like... We are podcasting friends. That's how we know each other. Yes, it really it is. That's so strange. Yeah, we're like, I didn't even think about that. We're like podcast bros. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty much it. And I fell in love with you because I knew you had a deep love for Star Trek. I was just going to bring that up. Yeah. yeah. So we met podcasting on someone else's show. Yeah. And then we podcasted on each other's shows. Yes. And now we're here again podcasting yes. on this show. I, again, for yeah. different reasons this time. And yeah. Probably way more meaningful, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Although I'm definitely going to ask you about Star Trek. But before That's we do. <laughs> just, so we, just so we're clear with everybody, Jesse's like, if 10 is the highest of Star Trek nerdery and really knows shit, like, I'm probably a 7. Hmm. So I'm not going to remember, like, episode titles or things like that. Like, I'm a very touchy-feely person. So yeah. if, you, if you're like, the episode felt like this, and here's what's happened, and here's who died, like, upstairs, you were like, and this is when she died. And I was like, oh, I know that episode. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember the feely parts, but not hmm. the... 
Not anything else. I've watched Next Generation so many times. I know Same. all the parts. I, I, it was literally, at once I knew everything, I would fall asleep to it every night. I just yeah. put it on my headphones. and That's Frasier for me. Andy and I watch Frasier every I night. Do I swear on this or no? You are allowed to do whatever Shut you want. Shut the fuck up. Like, <laughs> Frasier's my other one too. Really? Yeah, and still to this day, I'll watch Star Trek Next Generation or Frasier. Yeah. And now it's kind of moved to Big Bang Theory because I've watched that so many times. Okay. But Big Bang Theory has this musical end that always wakes me up, so I can't mm. do it. Yeah, Frasier's got that nice smooth yes. jazz yeah, exactly. to lull you right into sleep. I can't believe Frasier, too, for you. Okay. Andy and I are literally about to finish a back-to-back watch through of Frasier. And we've already seen it multiple times before. Yeah. yeah. But it's gotten to the point now, it's like we just, like, f- watching Frasier in bed is how we end the day. Yes. Yeah. Do you know what's ruined Frasier for me? What? Four years of therapy. Really? With, well, a, with a, you know, somebody who does what Frazier does. Right. Like so, actual psychoanalysis. Yeah. I was just like, how does this guy not have his shit together? Like, mm. <laughs> that's what messes me up is like, you're a psychologist. I don't know where was I that, but psychology. He was, a, what was he? A psychiatrist? Yeah. And I went to a psychotherapist. So I guess okay. they're not the same thing. Uh, what? Well, okay. He's but, a radio psychiatrist or psychologist yeah, or psychotherapist. I don't, I don't remember. You'd think I'd know because I've I seen it all a million times. I think yeah. he's a psychiatrist. Radio psychiatrist. Yeah. 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 That sounds right. Yeah. But he's also like a big man child. Yes. Whose 100%. life is always falling apart. Always. Hilariously Which is what slow. makes the comedy. Yeah. It's just the best show. It's yeah. just so good. It's so good. All right. Sorry. Okay. We, Zach. We derailed. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to know you a little bit uh, for the audience listening who has not met you before. So Perfect. tell us about yourself. Um, my name is Zach. Uh, you could call me Zach or Zachary Pike is kind of what I'm going by now. Really? Yeah. We can talk about that at some point. Yeah. Uh, my full, my legal name is Zachary Gandra. I have multiple stories because of multiple lives I've lived through, but essentially what has brought me here is when I was 29, I had kidney failure out of the blue was perfectly healthy. Um, and that's what we're here to talk about today. But there's a lot of other things in there. So yeah. do you want to know like what I do and like all of that Yeah, stuff? tell us who you are, what you do, what you love. Okay, I love psychology. I love humanity, believe it or not. I struggle with them, but I love humanity. And I, the weird thing that I live for is like helping people break out and break through of patterns they've been in their life that have been destructive or been hard because that's what I've been through. Mm-hmm. And so, and I've, like I said, gone through years of therapy and worked with multiple coaches that have really helped me to kind of do that and make big changes in my life. So I do, I do a lot of that. And I, I also am like an MC and a speaker and now writing. I have three books on the line and I'm like looking to write night right now. Um, I have titles for all of them. I'm not going to talk about them yet because (laughs) as you know, as like a creator, I don't want to like let the energy out before it's ready to be out because I need that energy inside so that I can like put it on the page. Yeah. Um, and oddly enough, I, like you said, we met via, uh, podcasting and when we met, I was just podcasting and then doing side gigs to make money, driving Uber and Lyft and some other side gigs, doing speaking, some speaking engagements and, COVID wrecked everything for me. Mm, yeah. And because I have a suppressed immune system from the, the kidney failure in from when I was 29 and I'm 45 now. Um, and that changed everything. I couldn't do public speaking anymore. I couldn't drive Uber and Lyft. I couldn't have in-person interviews on the podcast, which was 98% of my guests. I started as a, you know, how old was I then? 43, 42 year old man, like putting out corporate resumes for the first time. Mm 
in however many 10 years or something like that. Never thought I'd go back to corporate work, but needed to because of health insurance and I needed it to be virtual. Yeah. And put out over 250 resumes online all over anywhere and ended up at what honestly was my worst nightmare with growing up as in Seattle was Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) So in short, I can't tell you exactly what I do at Amazon, but my title is a training lead and I'm training and helping content creators as well as like speaking and, um, and doing speeches and webinars and training stuff. So it's, it fits with me for sure. Yeah. Um, and we'll, who knows, I'll probably be living a completely different life three to four years from now. That's just kind of how my trajectory <laughs> is. Yeah. <laughs> I've decided to start labeling myself a, something like a transformational soul sailor or something. It's mm. like, I have this internal drive that keeps wanting to live different lives for some reason. And every time I go there, which is why I love podcasting and humanity and talking to people because everybody's got a different story and adventure. And maybe I'm a pirate. I just really enjoy going into the lives, (laughs) beliefs, and things that are working for others and saying, okay, I could, like, that resonates with me. Can I have that from your experience? Can I Mm. apply that to my life? Like, yeah, I I think that's my addiction, probably. So, yeah. And since I know you a little bit, I know that your previous podcast, which, yeah. Or I guess we can talk about it. In Limbo podcast uh, is called Losing, Losing My Religion. Right. Or losing our religion. Losing our religion, yeah. Uh, not just yours, but everyone else's too. Yes. <laughs> our yes. religion. Um, yeah. And things outside religion, right? Like yeah. Like coming out stories. Because I came out of Christianity, like in a big way, as a former megachurch pastor. Yes. And people having coming out stories of like, you know, knowing they were gay their entire life and then coming out of that. And what was that transition like? I'm huge into life transitions. Like for some reason, I'm just really yeah. addicted to that. Yeah. That's so interesting. Cause that really was kind of at the core of what your podcast was about. Yeah. Is people like breaking free of some life and finding themselves in a new one. Yes. Um, and I was on your show at one point. Yeah. We, we talked a lot about my health back then. Yeah. And it was, so, I listened to it. Uh, a couple years ago and like had a panic attack listening to oh it. Oh my god! Do you remember I texted you? <laughs> yes, you did. I do remember that. Yeah, because I'm, I'm, we, I mean, that was like back in the day where I was like, you know, drinking and right. I think I had some heavy marijuana edibles before yeah, talking. Probably. And I listened to myself talking a mile a minute and I'm like, who is this guy? <laughs> and I like some of the things I said, I'm like, I, I feel uncomfortable listening to this. Yeah, that that was one of my tactics, though. And it, it was it was it was I was I was unconscious at first, mm. but then I because coming from my former religion where we didn't drink, yeah. So I became a heavy drinker, like straight out the gate, and I just loved the conversations I was having in bars with people. That's what led to the podcast. Yeah, and so, you know, on my sci-fi show, we used to drink all the time. That's right. That's and, right. Until we my, drank on that. Yeah. Yeah, and it's so it's so interesting. I mean, I my old podcasting life is so different from what I do now. Yeah. Um like now you know, I I talk about chronic illness and I can't drink anything anymore. Yeah. Um and you know, I'm often talking to people where I the conversations we have are like very limited yeah. amount of energy between both of us. Yep. And it's kind of amazing that anything ever gets anything ever happens, but I feel like in that state of, you know, not necessarily having all the energy that you would like to have. Yeah. I do feel like these really incredible conversations happen. Totally. Where it's 
Uh, it is like almost like an altered state of consciousness being chronically ill. It is. And when, when two people are at a similar altered state of consciousness, you can get to this like really deep level of conversation. Yeah. So I feel like that's what happens on this show a lot. Totally. Um, but it's completely without, you know, without alcohol, which used yes. to be the substance that I would use to try when to get you, in when that you state. When you meet your people, you don't need any other substance, really. Yeah. Like, it's just like you feel this instant bond of suffering. <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah, I'm at it. totally. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 so true. I have to ask you while you're here. You're wearing okay. a Star Trek shirt. Yes, and that, you know, we're we're friends. Yeah. We're going to go on a lot of tangents today. This yeah, is not yeah. going to necessarily be as smooth as a normal episode. That's of the show. I have to know if you've been watching the new Star Trek. I have all of them. All of it. Yeah. Okay. Just give me your quick thoughts. Star Trek Picard. Star so, Trek Discovery. Um, Star Trek Strange New Worlds. I want to know what you think. Just, we'll go from Discovery to Picard. Yeah. This is the Star to, Trek Minute. Yeah. <laughs> Let's so, do it. Funny enough, as Picard was coming out is what helped me get my job at Amazon because they had me write a critique of some form of entertainment and I mm. chose Picard. Yeah. And my theme or thesis was, it doesn't matter. My landing point was, this is finally a Star Trek that I got my girlfriend to love and fall in love with Star Trek. Wow. So that's was kind of what I think of Picard discovery. Um, what's the new one with Captain strange Pike? new worlds? Yes. Yeah, so, thank you. Strange new worlds is my girlfriend. My, for the first, my life, first time in my life, my female partner is enjoying watching Star Treks with me. Wow. And that's never happened in 45 years of life. So that's what I think about the new Star Treks. It's very important. Yeah. Yeah. I'm obsessed with Strange New Worlds. I love it. I love it so much. Yeah. And, you know, Picard has been up and down, but the Mm. finale of season two made me cry. I just got chills. It was beautiful. I wept like a fucking baby. (laughs) It was, it was so, it was, ah, that's like kind of what I want from that show is to, you know, is to put a bow around something from 20 years ago. You know, that was so nice and and lovely. I'm so excited for season three. I needed it emotionally because... I, I, without spoilers, we're not even, people yeah. know if you've seen it, you know what we're talking about. I, and if not, I cried. I've, I've never thought of myself as attached to like actors or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I cried when Anthony Bourdain died because mm. he has literally been a mentor to me. My show is very much like all of his shows. Yeah. Um, and then I cried. I can't remember his name. This is where I go off. I don't remember actors' names, but um, Fraser's dad, Martin. Oh yeah. When he died, John Mahoney. Yes. Oh my I God. fucking wept yeah. when he died. Yeah. When um, Sir Patrick Stewart's gonna die, I'm gonna fucking probably crawl in a ball and really struggle well, emotionally yesterday was his 82nd second I saw birthday? his tweet he's on a horse like riding a horse yeah yeah or his Instagram I yeah love that man he's very uh, important to me I feel like he's a fo- <laughs> like Picard is like a father figure to me in yeah. a number of different ways probably the dad in the form of leader that I always wished I had hmm. even in growing up in church life and you have a pastor or a leader like you always wanted somebody to be like Picard that was strong enough to make a decision and like lead everybody and everybody trusted him enough to like go along with him. But he was also humble enough to get everybody's perspective and then make a logical decision. Absolutely. I've had this discussion with so many people, you know, my friend Barton who watched Star Trek next generation for the first time a couple years ago, no, we'd known each other for years. He knew how much I loved it. And he's like, I loved this show. And what I loved about Picard is that he'd listen to everyone's opinion and then make a decision. hundred percent. Yeah. That, that is such a great leadership style. Yeah. Um, yeah. Amazing show. I love it. And I got to say, you know, discovery didn't like it at first. Yeah. I didn't either. I hated the first season. Season four was amazing. Mm -hmm. 
that was also an incredible finale. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. And I really got attached to a lot of characters. Yeah. Very quickly, like once we kind of got out of the first season. Yeah, the first season was was hard for me. There's people that love it, and I'm yeah. happy for them, but I am not one of those people. <laughs> uh, are you watching the cartoons, Prodigy and Lower Decks? Um, Lower Decks is one of those ones where I keep falling asleep during because I'm watching too late <laughs> at night while I'm laying in bed. Yeah. But the episodes I have watched, I love it. Yeah. Um, Prodigy, I haven't, I haven't watched yet. It's amazing. Is it? It's so oh, good. good. I was shocked. Oh, I lie. I watched the first episode. Okay. And then I just got busy and haven't gone back. The first episode blew me away. Yeah. I, I, it's so cinematic. Yep. Um, I also love the Clone Wars, Star Wars cartoons. Yeah, I've never seen them. Um, so I like the style of animation. I really, I love the first season of Prodigy. Okay. Good stuff. All the new Star Trek right now is so good. Yeah. And all the new Star Wars is so good. It's just, it's a good time to be alive. It's good. I'm glad they're doing well with the next generation of fans. Yeah, absolutely. I, but there's a lot of, and I know we should talk about something else, but yeah, (laughs) there's a lot of people that don't like the new Star Trek that are diehard Star Trek people. So I just not one of those people. It, It definitely took a few years to get, to a good place in my opinion but now i feel like it's so strong yeah you know everyone needs to go watch strange new worlds that's an insanely good good star trek show yeah Yeah. that the actor that plays the captain yeah captain pike is anson mount yeah he's great very sexy man yeah he's very handsome beautiful very good looking yeah great hope to look like that when my head goes gray yeah great great hair incredible hair yeah Yeah. i need his skincare regimen for sure but i know we're watching on hd with makeup and whatever but yeah but he's also (laughs) like an incredible actor he's very good just it's it's a great show very good Anyway, let's get on topic here. All right. <laughs> uh, so, Zach, what is your major pain? My, wow. I've had a lot of them, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, I'll start from birth and we'll just get there real quick. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I was born with a lazy eye, um, which you don't probably notice right now. But if I drink too much or get too high or I'm really tired, you'll start to notice it. Mm. So, I had that surgery before I was even four years old. Really? I never yeah. knew that. Yeah, I don't talk about it very much because there's really no reason to. Yeah. But that has been a pain my entire life because it's left me with no depth perception. Really? And so your brain adjusts, kind of. So there are some times where, for instance, where I have the most problem is people handing me money. So if someone's handing me money, I, I could grasp for it too soon. Like I literally just put my hand out and wait for them to put stuff into my hand. Anything. It doesn't have to be money. It could be anything. Wow. And then there's sometimes like I'll remember there was a, a this book I had on my desk and the image, the photography had a crumpled up post-it note and the shadowing was so perfect. I thought it was trash and I went to grab it and it's <laughs> literally the cover of a book. So yeah, I'm sorry. I'm laughing. No, That's... it's perfectly <laughs> hilarious. That's why I'm telling the story. I feel no, I feel no shame about these things. I at all. started I'm laughing and immediately felt bad. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't, uh, being a post religious person, I never want you to feel bad or guilt about anything. So okay. <laughs> just know that going in. And I was also born with flat feet. So I have zero arches in my feet, which, you know, then is leading to like knee problems, hip problems, whatever, as I age and get older. Hmm. Um, but the real shocker was happened when I was 29 and I had kidney failure out of the blue. So no, no, no like issues, no family history of this kind of illness or anything. It just happened out of the blue when I was 29 years old, kind of ignored the symptoms for a while, mo- mostly because my form of religion believed in faith healing um and it was like kind of like lack of faith to kind of go to the doctor and it was kind of looked down upon kind of thing wow so 
I didn't for a long time, but I started to gain weight and I started to swell. And somebody told me one time, like, you look really jaundiced, but I was traveling and speaking a lot for work at that time. So I just wanted to keep it going. And eventually I hit a wall and was like, fine, I'll go see a nutritionist (laughs) or a naturopath. Sorry. I'll go see a naturopath. And the naturopath like is like your blood pressure's through the roof. You're completely anemic. We need to go to the hospital right now. Wow. And so I get to the hospital. They're like, you, you are having renal failure. And I literally as a 29 year old arrogant dude was like, great. Give me the pill for that and get me out of here. They're like, look, this is going to change your life. There is no pill for this. We have no idea how you walked in here. And I just come back from like a speaking engagement in Texas of all places. So I flew back. Um, and, but I was freezing all the time. So I was in a hundred degree heat, like fully covered up freezing. (laughs) And they're like, this is, we don't know how you walked in here. You have, you're completely anemic. You have a third of the blood in your body that you need to function. We're admitting you to the hospital. So I had seven blood transfusions and they started the dialysis process over a week in the hospital. Um, which at that point I was so far gone that I was not conscious necessarily or fully aware of a lot of that that first time in the hospital, the first seven days, more like day four, five, six, and seven, I started to pick it up. Mm -hmm. And then they just started telling me like, you know, there's different options for, for, um, kidney patients on dialysis. There's hemodialysis or homodialysis or peritoneal dialysis. There's all the different, different forms. And I somehow, you know, whether it be fate or whatever, I had had a really good friend at the time who was in my same kind of industry of work and speaking and traveling. And he had had kidney failure for 10 years and he had gotten, been on a trip in Russia at one point, gotten a blood virus and it's destroyed his kidneys. And so he's lifetime dialysis. Um, and so he immediately called me, gave me a bunch of tips. He's like, look for your type of work, you want to do homodialysis. If, and you correct me if I'm wrong, cause I may not be remembering it correctly. Homodialysis is actually where you go into the clinic and hemodialysis is actually when you do it at home and you do it while you're asleep through chemicals. Hmm. It's very similar to parentineal dialysis from what I remember. And he's like, it's better for you to just go to the clinic, get it done, live your life for a couple of days and go back to the clinic. And dialysis <clears throat> is the process of cleaning, cleaning out your kidney. Yeah. So they do a whole bunch of things. So the type of dialysis I, the dialysis I did were four hour treatments, three times a week. Um, you're essentially connected. They connect and, you know, a, a tube to your IV. They give you what is called a, a fistula first. And so this tattoo I have on my forearm, I actually have because I didn't actually get a fistula. What, what is a fistula? So a fistula, they take your vein and artery and they create a pool of blood in your, usually it's in your arm for your first one. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just create a pool of blood that they can tap with heavy needles every time you go into dialysis to get the blood to flow out of your body into the machine. Through the filters, they add, they, it goes through a filter, filtration system as well as they kind of feed you at that point in time full of the vitamins and minerals that you're missing out because your kidney's not doing it. They're okay. giving you iron. And they're also like, your, your kidneys are really interesting. So they don't just like filter toxins out of your body and put it in your bladder as urine. They also send a hormone to your bone marrow to create blood cells. So if your kidneys are failing, you're also, which is why I was, that's why you didn't have blood. Yeah. That's why I didn't have blood. I was going to ask that. This is fascinating. These are all these words that I like kind of understand, but, but like being able to kind of pick your brain a little bit, I'm getting already getting a much better understanding. So dialysis, like, it's not just like. It's basically replacing the process of yeah. filtering your blood that your kidney would normal normally do, but yeah. your kidney is failing. So we got to take all the blood out of your body, yep. 
clean it out, put it back in with some vitamins and nutrients and minerals and stuff. Yeah. And different medications and stuff, you know, as well. So it's, I mean, it's essentially like putting your body through a marathon every time you're on the machine. Yeah. Because your, your entire blood package, (laughs) whatever you want to call it, I don't know what to call it. Your entire body filled with blood is going through this machine multiple times in this four hour period. Wow. And the time you're on the machine depends on kind of your weight and kind of stuff. So generally it's about three to four hours for most people. And then it could be more if you're like a, like a taller, bigger person or whatever. Yeah. Just depending on how much blood you have. Exactly. Yeah. Depending on your, your blood. So you are a, you're a mega church pastor. Yeah. And your church believes in faith healing. Your church believes in faith healing. Yeah. And then you run out of blood because you're dying because your kidneys are failing. Yeah. And then you end up in the hospital on dialysis. How do you process that emotionally? That's a really good question. Um, funny enough, for me, it was like a giant sense of relief. Like when the medical doctors looked at me and said, "This is forever. You're gonna. This is gonna change your life forever." All of a sudden, a huge weight was lifted off of me because when I was a child, I'd had symptoms, but my they were kind of flu-like, and I would have back aches but my family didn't really believe in doctors. Like we didn't even take Tylenol. So it was mm. kind of like, go to your room, you know, read the Bible and read all the heal the scriptures about healing. And then, you know, you'll get your faith worked up and then God can, God will heal you and you'll be fine. And a couple, you know, an hour or a couple days later or whatever it was, <laughs> <laughs> however long I was sequestered to the room. Cause my parents didn't like dealing with negativity. Um, <laughs> uh, you come out and I'm fine. The symptoms will go away. Yeah. So we didn't ever notice and then once I got diagnosed, they actually told told me that they they now have a way to find. I, it was a birth defect for me, so it wasn't a disease or anything that caused it. It was just a birth defect. And the doctors said that there's a way now that they can find this early in like kind of infancy, like mm-hmm. when you're a younger child, and they they treat it and kind of try to fix it then. Um, but it was a big relief to hear that I finally had a diagnosis for what was wrong because I had had weird symptoms my entire life, and I was coping with those symptoms by suppression and other religious means. Wow. And so now I had a reason for everything that was happening to me and I had a plan of attack of how to deal with it. And that was so refreshing to me. Yeah. And probably the big emotional blew up happened probably maybe day four, day five in the hospital right after diagnosis. Cause my family came in and they started putting scriptures on my walls, like healing scriptures. And my reaction was, like virile. I was like, take that shit down. Like I, I swore and I didn't swear back then. Like I was like, please take that shit down. And they're shocked. Like their faces and shocked. And, and at the time I'd read through the Bible and I had a partial ma- I never finished my master's degree in theology because that's when I kind of like started to leave. Mm. Um, but I've read the Bible cover to cover 13 times and I'd kind of found a scripture I, th- I can't remember now. I'm now 12 years, 15 years out, however it is. Um, but it was when the Paul, the apostle started getting sick or having blindness given to him. And he prayed to God that God would heal him. And God told him, no, I'm not going to heal you. This essentially is going to, you know, shape your life. Like there's a reason you have this. They call it a thorn in his flesh is what the Bible called it. And so I took that on as me. Like, there's a reason I have this. Like I, I just, I, there's a reason that I'm, that God is not taking this away. So at the time, that's how I, so initially there was no, because you know your whole, your podcast was called "Losing Our Religion." Yeah, I know yeah. that you are not a religious person now. Yeah. yeah, but in that moment, day four, 
you incorporated what was happening into your faith. Yeah. And, and still to this day, that's still my narration because this changed my life in such a positive way. Like I'm, I, I look back now and I'm actually very thankful I had kidney failure. I'm almost about to cry. Like you and I wouldn't know each other. Mm-hmm. I'd still be in a horrible marriage. I'd still be in the mega church world. I'd be making shit tons of money because religion's very profitable, but I wouldn't be happy. I wouldn't be who I really am. In in a sense, it was like a coming out story. Like I feel like I got to find out like who am I outside of my family, outside of this faith. And I'm I'm, I'm not anti-religion. Like I'm for whatever helps people cope. I am anti-theocracy and I am um, anti-dogma. So like if you're forcing other people or other people have to form to your will for your thing, I'm not about any of that. And I'm not about it being um, dictated to people as government. (laughs) Yeah. So whatever we need is fine. Um, and so that it still fits my narrative today. Like it was, it saved me. Like I look at kidney (laughs) failure now as like the very thing that saved me. That's fascinating. Yeah. And you're, you know, People can't see you that are listening. Well, I'll, I'll yeah. share a photo of you with the episode. Yeah. But, you know, you 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 got like a punk rock vibe. Yeah. You got a mohawk. <laughs> I've seen a photo of you in your church days. Yeah. And you're like clean shaven, very yep. tan. Yeah. Like you got like bleach blonde bleach tips yeah. in your hair. You can use both photos. You can use like a before and after. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that photo uh, and it it's it's a completely different person. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah. it's sh- it's like really shocking because like now you just seem comfortable. You yeah. seem like you found yourself. Yeah. And that photo of you from from the church days, it's like this is someone who is is conforming to something. Yeah. 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 And it's funny because in the I was still I always had this punk rock vibe my life in my whole life. I didn't even know that it was punk rock because I was in a religion that shielded me from that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I remember the day when my mega church pastor, who's a fucking bazillionaire because of this. Um, he looked at me and he's like, I will buy you a Hugo Boss suit if you will stop wearing black. <laughs> and I was like, ah, oh, sweet. Okay, let's go get me a Hugo Boss suit. So I stopped wearing black. Like that's when that, the, the, when I stopped wearing black, like, which is so funny. I've never asked you this question. And yeah. it just occurred to me. I've always wanted to know this. How did you become a mega church pastor? Oh my God. Well, it's, you know, a failed baseball career, a religious family. Like, um, in, in short, this it, I can make it short and it's pretty obvious. I was born in Oklahoma, which is a bit Oklahoma City, which is a bit of the buckle of the Bible Belt. My, my family was Catholic, Hispanic. Uh, my dad's side of the family is Hispanic. My, my mom's side of the family was told Irish, but I did a DNA test and it's actually Scottish. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so they were Catholic. My parents met at Catholic school. Um, my parents kind of had their own coming out of Catholicism in Oklahoma and they got into, you know, the, the TV channel preachers, like the televangelists and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so when we moved to Seattle when I was six years old, that's all I knew and what my family had taught me and what we got kind of back into. So, um, I remember as a child and this is funny, um, like a lot of kids, like I have a friend who's a, he's a professional magician and comedian and he makes a good living like doing, doing this. And he was doing magic as a child and he just knew he would do that his whole life. The thing I did as a child was get all my toys lined up like an audience, grab a pulpit and a Bible, preach to them, 
like I remember laying my hands on all star, all star, the snork. If you're old enough, you remember the snorks <laughs> and like making him fall down under the power of the Holy spirit. Like you see, you know, these televangelists do on television. Yeah. So that I, was what I thought I was going to do. And that's literally how I ended up in it. I was making stop motion movies with my star Wars action exactly. figures. <laughs> that you're still kind of doing, yeah, which is wonderful. Awesome. Like, I am, I'm actually so jealous of that in many ways. And I, I've just actually kind of been freed of it a bit because I heard this Oscar Wilde quote that is essentially, if you grew up thinking you would be this and he's like, and you will become that. And that is your punishment. And then <laughs> the next, it's so funny. And then the next part of the quote is like, and then there's those that never know what we want to be. And we live the adventure and that is our reward. And I find it was the first quote I read of that. And I felt at home Yeah, and I'm right, like, fuck, right. like this is, I'm totally missing paraphrasing it, but, um, I'm starting to feel at home now and realizing I'm just some kind of a weird sailor. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. I, I, I'm curious about the shape <clears throat> of your story. What, where are you right now with faith? That's a good question. And, and Christianity. Like what, where are you presently? Cause we know where you were. Yeah. And I know that there's this, you know, this like faith healing element that, was completely knocked out of you because you would have died. Yeah. And you had to kind of accept something that was outside of what was within your faith. Yeah. And I'm curious where you are now. And then I kind of want to hear about the journey, but I yeah. want to know where we're going first. It, it's uh, it's very difficult for me to, to land on that. I have a heavy resistance to like planning a flag and like who I am or what I am, because I look at myself as like, I'm a fucking soul sailor. Like yeah. that's kind of, it's like, because once I nail something down, I end up becoming something else Yeah. because I'm so curious. I want to keep finding things and other, the things I keep finding are resonate more with me and are more helpful to my life. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I think, I think I can, you're the first person that's asked me this in a long time in to where I'm finally to a point. I actually think I could land it. And I don't even think I've ever said this publicly. And I still refuse to identify myself as this. I'm more, I'm probably of, I'm, I'm a mystic. Like I'm very much, I'm, I was a closeted mystic, but now I'm like an outed <laughs> one. <laughs> so I, I, I just have this. And if in most mystics do, you have this internal thing that something connects all of us, something like unifies all of us. We all are the same or come from something that's similar. And that's, funny enough, like probably why I fell in love with Star Trek so much as a child, because it's this utopian idea of human beings evolving to a more unified and better state. That's less violent and less scared and less all of this stuff. And, yeah. and I think, yeah, I'm like a Star Trek mystic then I guess. Yeah. So you're like <laughs> riding this like spiritual wave. Yeah. Well, what about, you know, all the scripture that you grew up with, like the specificity yeah. of Catholicism? Yeah. I look at it now as like, it's all, it's all pieces of a shattered mirror to me. Like there, if there is this one unifying force and whether it's found in, I, I think now like the study of quantum physics is so fascinating to me and, and string theory and like all these things, because they're actually starting to sh study this unifying force now. And, and it's, it's becoming science. Like anything in, in our history that was magic is, was only called magic because there was no scientific, scientific proof behind it mm -hmm. until it, and now it's science because it's not magic anymore. And so that's where I'm at. I look at the, look at the Bible, I, you know, coming out, you hate it. That's the, that's the trajectory of like, when you leave something, you, you vilify it. And yeah. then as you heal and as you learn to heal or you get help healing, you start reevaluating, you blow it all up. And then you start to realize, okay, there's some pieces here that still resonate me and you can go back and pick those up. And now I look at it as 
these are all pieces of there's some stuff in Christianity, there's some stuff in Buddhism, there's some stuff in Hindi, Hindu, there's um and there and there's all these things that are part of the shattered mirror that are the story of all of us that I think are in all of them. And yeah, that's, that's how I look at it now. Yeah, I was actually a, a religious studies minor in oh, college. Wow. Okay. And I didn't know that. Yeah, I took a lot out of it, you know. Yeah. I I uh I think what what you're saying is kind of similar to the way that I was looking at it that, you know, all of these religions are trying to describe something. Yeah. And I don't know what it is, but there's something that human beings, yeah. you know, we feel like wh- whether it's a, you know, like when you go to a rock concert and you feel this communal energy, there's like something so powerful about that. Exactly. And I think like for a lot of people, they get that from church. Yep. Um, it's the same energy. Yeah. So there, there's no difference. There is like, yeah. I, I was always really taken with uh, what I learned about Taoism. Mm-hmm. I love in, Taoism. In uh, religious studies, because yeah. it's like, you know, the Tao is the way and the way yeah. is kind of what we think of as God. Yeah. And, and it's like, okay, so what is that? And like, we don't know. Yeah. You know, we, we know that it exists and yeah. we, we uh, try to like live in harmony with it mm-hmm. because it can help us walk a, a happier path or more, you know, uh, exactly. W- whatever type of path it is that the, that they're trying to seek. Yeah. But, but they don't try to define it. And exactly. it's actually sort of against the rules yes. to define it. Yes. And I love that because yep. it's like, well, you know, we don't know what it is. Yeah. And the idea of like putting all these different rules and, uh, you know, structure around it yeah. can put people in boxes where yep. they then can't go to the hospital. Exactly. Because they don't believe in, yeah. in what other people are telling them. Yeah. And I, I like more than ever understand why those boxes are attractive. Like it is, it is very attractive to find a place of safety that this is what you believe and this is it. And then you just guard the shit out of it from anything ever attacking it. It, it It's like this fortress of solitude kind of mm, thing. Yeah. Like I understand that. And it's, and even when I was in it, I always kept asking the question, and this is the problem. If you're asking this question, your religion's in trouble. And that question is, there's gotta be more. There's mm. gotta be more to this. Like there's gotta be more than this. And if you're asking that with anything, a relation, I, I believe this, like a relationship, a job, whatever it is, then you should dig. To, it doesn't mean you're going to leave or get divorced or like stop believing or whatever. It just means that's something that's a curiosity that you should look into because hmm. something is telling you that it's not resonating with you anymore or that there's something else that you need. And it's not selfishness to seek that, which is what much of the religion teaches. And the reason, reason it teaches is because the box is comfortable. Don't look outside the box. Um, that's the positive I spin I have on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, if you don't, yeah. if you don't date around, you don't know what you're looking for. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's, yeah, hundred percent. It's exactly like that. So take us back to, you know, you're in that first week. Yeah. Uh, things start to become a little clearer by day four. And, and you mentioned that, you know, you started to hate religion after that yeah. or hate Christianity after yep. that. And now you've picked up some of the pieces, but, yeah. uh, but what happens to you when you start to recover? Um, you get this dialysis. Yeah. You you come out of kidney failure. You absolutely could have died in that moment. Yep. But we you know we clean up the blood. Yep. Um, are there repercussions for having gone to the hospital within your church? Wow. Um, I was lucky <laughs> in that the the guy that started this mega church maybe a year or two years before me, he was an ex drug addict. 
Mm. And he some he not somehow, but he eventually, while a couple years before my kidney failure was diagnosed, he was diagnosed with hepatitis C. And so that kind of rocked his theology and what he could preach. So he just kind of spun it. He found which he does what preachers do is like you found he found a scripture in the Bible that was from one specific version of the Bible. Like there's many, many versions. There's a living translation in the Amplified Bible and the New King James and the King James. And there's like, so in one version, I think it was the Amplified Bible. He found a scripture that said in Proverbs that says, he who doesn't utilize every tool at his disposal to heal himself is a sinner. <laughs> and so he all of a sudden landed on that scripture in the Amplified Bible. It doesn't say that in any of the other translations, just that one. But so he had kind of opened up to that point. Yeah. And so it was it was no longer like looked, at least it wasn't portrayed to me that suddenly my faith had been waning or that I had done something wrong. Um, um, so at least from that form of it in the leadership of the church, it was okay. And they were actually very supportive. Like... Like they, they paid for some of the medical bills. Wow. Um, it was very expensive. I wrecked the entire church's healthcare system because everything I needed was so expensive. They had to get a new healthcare company. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I went from, I think the surgery alone was a few hundred thousand dollars each night in the hospital is $15,000. And then the dialysis is $8,000 a treatment or something like that. You know, it's like, what was so, the surgery? Um, I had multiple surgeries while on dialysis and they were all vascular. So I think I had seven surgeries while I was on dialysis because they never gave me that fistula we were talking about earlier. They, I still have a scar up here in my jugular kind of from my chest. So I just had a um, catheter hanging from my chest for two years while I was on dialysis. And the reason they never gave me the fistula was because I had, because I lived in a huge church community and was really in that community known all over the world. And once people found out that I had kidney failure, I had volunteers from everywhere to give me their kidney. That's the wonderful thing about a religious community. Wow. And so um, they, they're like, you're going to get a kidney fast. So, and I, and I, they, they'd scheduled the fistula surgery twice and the doctor had canceled it for some reason. So Finally, I was like, we already know who my donor is. Let's not put that on my body. So I refused the medical treatment to have it put on. I was like, just let me live with the catheter for now. So for seven years, I had multiple catheters that they had to change in and out or whatever. Because so, they, eventually they get clotted and then they can't use it anymore. And so a catheter on your neck? It was hanging down. It was probably from, it's probably like eight from the like collarbone. Yeah. Probably hang down about eight, nine inches. And I would just tape it to the side, to my body. And that's where and nobody your could see it, urine you know? would come out. No, that's what, no, I'd still, so when you're on dialysis, you generally don't urinate anymore. Okay. Because wow. your body is just storing all this liquid, which is why people with kidney failure swell, their ankles swell, their mid, the midsection swells, wow. things swell. That's why I had to be hospitalized and had, they put me on full day in the hospital, eight hours of dialysis because I had 75 pounds of liquid in my bloodstream. And so they did the seven blood wow. transfusions and got the 70 pounds of liquid out of my bloodstream. So I went from weighing 250 pounds to a hundred and I'm not doing the math right. I know that, but I weighed something like 250 pounds and ended up coming out of the hospital weighing like 143 pounds or something. Wow. Like I went so from a 36 inch waist to a 29 inch waist wow. because all that weight loss was liquid. And then because my kidneys weren't working, my muscles weren't like 
filled with blood or weren't very strong. That's mm-hmm. why they're like, we don't even know how you walked in here today. Like you should be in a wheelchair. <laughs> yeah. So I was running on faith basically. <laughs> <laughs> so what comes out of that? Uh, it's the, just, the so they do, they do two tubes. It's like the fistula. It's like a fake fistula. So the one is for the artery and one is for the vein. So one's blood in and one's blood out. Okay. To the machine. So you're n- yeah. you're not peeing. So it's and a, you just go in for I know dialysis. There's a urinary catheter too. Yeah. 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 Like, but yeah, I've yeah, never heard that. Catheter, yeah. I've never heard that word used for anything else. Yeah. It's so funny. Um. So you you just you don't pee at all, and then you just they yeah. just take your fluids out. My dialysis. my story about the peeing while on dialysis was, was it was glorious. Like not having to pee. Imagine your life. Imagine sleeping your the entire night and never being woken up once yeah. to go pee. Imagine being able to make it through the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy and never having to get up to go to the bathroom. Like it was so, pretty great. <laughs> like, so how many days would you go without? evacuating fluids um until the next dialysis treatment basically and then they would pull it out of my bloodstream through the the dialysis machine wild yeah that's how they do it that's crazy and you were saying dialysis three or four times a week yeah it was three three times a week four hours of treatment okay um it it, like i said it was like a marathon on your body so it wipes you out like i was exhausted after it so i always did and it's different for every person everybody some people get energized after they do it i was exhausted yeah so i always did mine at night just kind of got home went to bed like woke up the next morning feeling like a million bucks so the longer you go between those treatments the more like shit you start to feel so this liquid starts to bring up, you know, build up in your bloodstream. Your heart has to pump all that liquid. So a lot of people that are on dialysis long term, their heart actually turns into like flubber because the muscles are expanding and contracting with the liquid and your heart's working so hard to pump all that li- extra liquid through your bloodstream. This is crazy stuff. So, so, so your bladder, your bladder's not getting full. It's just your bladder your, shrinks. Your, your body's getting full of yeah, liquid. Yes. Wow. So your body <laughs> feels so yeah. And I still urinated every once in a while, like tiny, tiny bits. Okay. Um, but, you know, that's probably the later part of the story is like all of a sudden I had kidney transplant. My kidneys are working and my bladder had shrunk because I hadn't needed to pee for two years or three two years, years, whatever it was. Wow, yeah. wow, geez. So now I'm peeing every hour on the hour. Like, and the other shitty thing, I mean, going back to the dialysis is you're on a diet that you, that, that uh, essentially you're also taking medications to collect calcium and potassium that you eat. You're limited to like, you're not eating potassium. I was limited to eight ounces of drinking water per day. Like, cause you have, you, cause everything you're drinking is being stored there. So wow. you're never eating soup. You're never drinking liquids. If I'm thirsty, it's like you chew gum or you chew, or you suck on an ice cube and you do whatever you can to get past the thirst. But in general, you're never dehydrated because you're full of liquid, yeah. you know, but your mouth, you know, you get cotton mouth or you get parched and it's like, okay, what am I going to, I can't drink more water. So you just take a tiny sip and you carry this one eight ounce bottle. At least that's what I did to make sure and limit my water intake. Wow. Okay. So you eventually, <clears throat> you mentioned you eventually get a liquid intake period, not you, just water. You eventually yeah. get a kidney transplant. Yeah. So you're basically like your kidney fails yep. and then you have, you stay alive by being on dialysis and, yep. and everything we just talked about. Yeah. And then eventually get a transplant Mm -hmm. and you so that transplant came from someone within your church yeah well it was a it was a another youth pastor friend of mine at another church and um i had had three friends that uh i think i think five people went fully through the testing process three out of those five were close enough dna literally to be my own physical brother somehow so you have six dna alleles that make the dna the dna strand and like a 
perfect twin would be like five out of six of those, or I don't think it's possible to do a six out of six. I think it's like five. Mm-hmm. And then anything beneath five, like four to three similar alleles are then like a blood relative. So three out of the five people that got tested had three or more of the same DNA alleles that I have. Weird. And so luckily that's a very lucky thing because yeah. I'm, on, I'm on immune suppressants, but I'm comparatively to a lot of people. I'm on very little because of that, um, that DNA. Cause the kidney was type. such a good match. Yeah, man, this, there's so much about this. I yeah. didn't know. Yeah. Um, is what, what's the feeling of like having someone else's organ in your yeah. body? That's a fun <laughs> question. Um, so I had an interesting thing where my birth defect was that there's, there's tubes that connect your kidneys to your bladder. They're called ureter tubes. Yeah. So I had arteries that had grown over both of my ureter tubes on both kidneys. And so what happened is they pinched off those arteries, pinched off the ureter tubes to my bladder. So my kidneys for 29 years kept filling with liquid and expanding until they expanded so far they didn't work anymore. So your kidney is about the size of your fist, a normal healthy kidney. My kidneys were the size of an NFL football. So like, pretty big and full of liquid and they had cysts in them. So they originally thought I had polycystic kidney disease, which oh, is hereditary man. because I had all these cysts in my kidney, but nobody in my family has ever had that. So they ruled it out very quickly. They didn't know what actually caused my kidney failure until my transplant. They opened me up and the, the surgeon found it and took pictures of it. And he said he put it in medical journals and stuff. He's like, it was the best example. They have a medical name for it. I don't remember what it was. But he was like, this is the best visual example of the artery, artery growing over the ureter tube, which caused your kidney failure. So it was a random oh, wow. fluke. Like, and it happened to both kidneys? Both of them. The exact same thing on both. And because of a congenital, congenital defect? They call it a congenital defect. Yeah, a congenital wow. kidney defect. Yeah, That's, that's so mind I was born with it. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. Um, and, so, and, that, and so they I, took mine too. out. So football they, sized kidneys. Yeah. Let's not pass that by. <laughs> well, yeah, they're in they're in your back generally, right? They're closer to your back. And so um they they took mine out, my native ones. That was the first part of the surgery. The surgery was I think it was I don't know. I don't remember how many hours it was, but it went way over time. Hmm. Uh I think I was in surgery eight to ten hours or something like that. And um, but they took both of my native kidneys out. Yeah. They were concerned about possible infection because of the liquid that would stay in there. Um, it's just empty weight. Most kidney transplant patients, they leave their native kidneys in there because they're just that size of your fist. They're not very big, but because mm. mine were big and full of liquid, they took them out. I didn't know that. And so when they put the new one in, they put it in the front and they put it right on top of your kidney. And the reason why is because that ureter tube is actually pretty long on your native kidneys, but they've had so many problems with that ureter tube being long and creating problems that they now put the kidney generally, at least they did when I was, I mean, it's been 12 years for me. So maybe the technology is different now, but they put it on top of your kidney. Mine's to the right. Most people I think is to the right or to the left. And that ureter tube is very small. So um, for a while, it's very strange because you kind of feel something there. Mm. Um, but like, I don't feel around it. I don't ever touch it and I don't notice it now. Um, but it was, and I didn't really notice it a lot then. Like it didn't feel much different. Yeah. Funny enough. Like, and so the, yeah. the ureter, I'm familiar with ureters because I've had kidney stones yeah. and we did a harrowing episode about kidney stones, oh which I highly recommend listening to. Um, so the, the ureter must, must attach to the kidney somehow, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they have to, 
attach that to this new kidney yep. that they put in. Yep. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to pee. Yep. Because all this liquid is filtering th- through the kidney and then yep. goes through the ureter and then you pee it out eventually. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, through the bladder. Yeah, through the bladder. Yeah. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's incredible that we can even do this. I know like, it's fascinating. The yeah. Fact that I've met heart transplant patients now and yeah. I'm just like blown away. That to me is like, that's the vital organ. Like yeah. you can live with kidney failure for a pretty long time. Like I lived with it like some severe kidney failure for months without dying. It's just the symptoms get worse and worse and worse. You keep gaining the liquid weight. I started looking jaundice. Like I said, like yeah. you're losing energy. You turn yellow. You can't. Yeah. 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 You lose blood. You're freezing because you don't have blood in your body. Like every time I ate, the blood would rush to my stomach. And so every time I ate, I would get freezing cold. Wow. So, and, you, and how long were you living like that before you discovered? Years, a couple years. Like before you found out you were in kidney failure. Yeah. So yeah, your yeah, kidneys yeah. were like dying for years. For years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What about the emotional uh, feeling of having someone else's organ in your body? Is there a sense of of guilt of taking someone else's kidney. Cause you know, people can yeah. live with one kidney, but it is, you know, yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's the same in every state, Washington state, they assign you a social worker from the day you get diagnosed to you have till the day you have your transplant. Mm-hmm. And so the sur- social worker kind of acts as like a mediator, an educator and a mediator. So even when I had friends start getting tested, I was never allowed, like it's a, it was against the law in Washington for me to speak with any of these people about this testing procedure really? or any, any of the process. Wow. Like we had to speak through to each other about it through the mediator, the okay. social worker. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, again, I was lucky. I had a friend that could educate me about the process that could tell me that you, you can say no to the medical industry. Like just because they're saying this is how you should do it or how they're suggesting you need to do the research and figure out for yourself what works best with your lifestyle and what works best for you. That was huge to me. So that friend educating me there and then the social worker kind of educating me along the way as well, um, all the way to the point of they had picked someone to be my transplant partner. I don't know what you call it. (laughs) My transplant friend. Um, And I was like, I don't want to do it with them. And they're like, why? And I'm like, I don't know them very well. I don't trust them. They're kind of weird. Like I, I literally said this to the social worker. I feel like in 12 years, they're going to want their kidney back and like <laughs> ransom me for it or something. Um, but my best friend at the time, I was like, he wants to do it. Why are you not having him do it? And they're like, well, this person's single. He, your friend has five kids. And if you have children, it's a risk. So they don't want you to do it. Hmm. And I was like, well, isn't that his decision? Like, can't you ask my friend and see if he wants to do it? And for my friend, he was like, they were dead set. Like God told me to give me, give you my kidney. Like they, to them, it was like a very big spiritual thing. And I felt very humbled. Um, but then again, I had the narrative, like, this is part of my body or this is part, not a part of my body was part of my body, but this is a part of my life. This is just what I'm supposed to go through. So I kind of just, <laughs> what you learn in therapy in many ways is like how to let go, or maybe this is mindfulness more so, but you learn how to let go. And so at that point, when I had had that narrative, once I decided this is just my lot in life and you just accept it, um, however, the next stages are going to take form. We're just like, whatever, you know, it was like at the time it was like, God's going to take care of whatever it's, if it's not my friend, it's going to be somebody else. Like everything will be fine. Um, so yeah, I think at that point, my faith was actually really helpful. I was just going to ask you that. It sounds like, um, it sounds like being a part of this church 
made this whole process go a little bit easier. Yeah. And hearing you say that, you know what I remember? I remember sitting with a social worker and she looked at me and she goes, you're going to be fine. You're a part of a faith community and you're a part of a big faith community. And I was like, well, why do you say that? And she's like, people that are a part of a faith community, they get the support they need and they end up getting kidneys. Wow. Quickly. And people that aren't struggle a lot more. She goes, you'll be fine. And then, and then you're young and no disease caused this. So, and even the doctors were saying the same thing and like, you're lucky, no disease caused this. You're going to be fine. Like, you know, it'll be easier for you. You, (laughs) My doctor, my nephrologist literally said to me at the time, he's like, you're young, disease didn't cause this and you have great health insurance. Yeah. So like those three things in America are like the trifecta of amazingness when it comes to needing great, great health, young, healthy, otherwise great healthcare. (laughs) Yeah. That's so, that's so so interesting. And a great community. Like that's like the, I guess the fourth pillar of. I, I feel really lucky. So yeah, especially it's so interesting, especially because that's not your community anymore. No, and, and you left the church entirely. Yeah, my friend that gave me his kidney, um, we don't really speak any that much anymore. Is, is this the person with the five kids? Yeah. So he did end up. You did end up getting yeah, his I ended kidney. Up, ended up getting his kidney. And funny enough, like the the hilarious part is the day of my surgery was the 2008, the day, the day Obama got elected. That's how I always remember it. It was election day, (laughs) 2008. I think that's the right year. And, um, like we went into it, like we're best friends, like really close. And we're like going into the kind of the pre-op room laughing. We were like joking and talking to each other and having a good time next to the beds, you know? And it was just like, cause he was my friend. It was like, we're doing this together. It was really Wow. Again, I feel super it's like, lucky. It's like, like you're going on a water slide. Yeah. And it's not <laughs> this great for everybody, you know? Yeah. I mean, so yeah, we went through it. He got really ill directly after it. He ended up getting the flu literally the next day, Yikes. which is again, chance of luck because if I had gotten the flu from him, because they crash your immune system to put the organ in, I had mm. to be a bubble boy for three months. So had I gotten the flu, I could have died. Worst case scenario, I would have lost the kidney that he just gave up had I got sick because they would have had to wow. like remove it from my immune system to fight off the flu. And there's no putting that back in. No, <laughs> no, not that one. Yeah. So he would have been without a kidney and I would have still been in the same same boat. Wow. Yeah, literally they had to like get him out of the hospital and they put him in a hotel room nearby that the hospital owns and like took care of him kind of there to like separate him. And then how, how, once he recovered from the flu, how did he do with one kidney? Yeah, he did. So he's done okay. What's really, he had, um, uh, I can't remember what's really painful in your feet. I can't remember. Uh, he can't, he has, so he has a pretty limited diet now because there, he's had some, which is, I guess, normal for a lot of, it's actually easier for the transplantee than it is the, the one that, the, the recipient than it is the one that gives it. Wow. So he's had to change his diet. Like he can't have bacon and stuff that he would really love before uh, gout because he started because mm-hmm. his, his body chemistry has changed because he only has one kidney. Um, whereas my body, body chemistry has essentially stayed the same and I'm a normal, healthy person all of a sudden in, in general speaking, like yeah. my side effects that I have to deal with that we can continue to talk about are the, the many side effects of living with a suppressed immune system. Yeah. Um, I definitely want to get into that yeah. for sure. Um, do you, do, do you feel any guilt about that? 
I mean, because you don't have yeah. a choice here. It's like you're going to die. I mean, you're talking to a guy who's had five years of therapy, multiple mindfulness coaches that have helped me to learn to let go. Yeah. And I look at whenever guilt or shame pop up, I look at that now. And it's like I coach people too. And like, like guilt and shame, guilt and shame. When we feel guilt and shame, that is a litmus test for something else going on inside. And we should evaluate and like kind of deep dive those issues. And so I don't feel any guilt and shame. I feel grateful. I'm still grateful to him. Um, it's been difficult because as I went, <laughs> as I went further left, he went further right. And I'm mm. talking politics. Yeah. And um, so it's been difficult. And it's the same reason I'm kind of estranged with my family. Like they went super far right and I went super far left. Um, I, you know, I, I fell in love with Jesus, the uh, communist hippie, the socialist hippie who loved people. And they fell in love with some, something else. So mm. at the time, and I'm not a Christian and I don't label myself a Christian anymore, but that's very much the thing. And so that's what I, I feel bad about. I feel that that's more of the difficult thing for me to handle. Um, we still talk every once in a while, like on that November 8th, every November 8th, like I want, I often will reach out and say, thank you. Or we'll, talk or there's been a couple years I've skipped during the Trump era. <laughs> so, um, but we have, you know, we at least have a social media relationship now. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, he got, he lived in Portland. He got for the right moved to Texas, just like my family did as well. So the, it's more the American shit that then opposed to, I mean, if, if, if he did what he felt like he was supposed to do and he said he did and what God told him to do, what is how his narrative is. I don't feel any guilt about it. Like I really, is this is what he wanted to do? Well, so, I mean, it'd be really hard to feel guilty about living. Yeah, and he made it such an easy. Like, he's a good human at the core of it. He's not mm -hmm. a bad person. Like, and, and how could he be? He gave his fucking organ and risked his life for someone. Like, it's it's an amazing thing that he did. Yeah, I hope that. I mean, now they won't let me be an organ. That's the funny thing is you can't be a, really a transplant donor or a blood donor because my body's filled with immune suppressant drugs. So it's, um, it's a little bit odd. Like I have to live the rest of my life hypocritically, basically. Um, <laughs> and maybe I'm wrong on that. Maybe there's more research to be done, but that's essentially what I've been told is they I can't donate blood. So yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, guilt. No, I don't feel guilt. I feel I feel extremely grateful to the point of tears and almost talking about it. Yeah, yeah. That's, I feel very, I mean, like I said, very lucky. The it's the greatest gift anyone could ever give. Yeah, I mean, it's literally being born again. You know, mm -hmm. and and funny enough, like that was the social workers kind of prepped my wife and I as well that you've been taking care of your my ex wife now. You've been taking care of your husband for I think it was three years that I was on dialysis. And he's suddenly going to be brand new and have all of his energy back. And in many cases, this leads to divorce for many mm. couples because <laughs> it's hard to navigate that. Yeah. Um, where she was a caretaker and gave up her life to take care of me for three years. Um, and all of a sudden I'm fine now. And I'm like, oh, let's go. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> you know, um, that's not, and it doesn't, that's not why we ended up getting a divorce, but um, it's hard, it's hard in relationships to go through that. Yeah. Totally. And you know, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, having chronic illness in a relationship on either side is very complicated. You know, having it on one side or the other side or both sides, it's all super complicated. Yeah. So after you have your uh, transplant surgery, what was the recovery like? How long did that take until you start bouncing with energy? Um, I was, uh, 
they, like I said, I, they didn't tell us what the complications were, but I clearly had comp- complications because I was in surgery eight to 10 hours or something like that. And then I was in post-surgery recovery for a long time, I guess. And they wouldn't let my family or my wife speak to me. They didn't know what was going on, so they were kind of freaking out. Um, and then I was in ICU for God knows how long. And I was, uh, I now know that what I felt, I felt like I was underwater. I could see everything in black and white. I could kind of see people in the room. And I remember vision. I now realize that that's from morphine. (laughs) (laughs) I have friends that are ex drug addicts or current drug addicts. that are like, Oh, no, 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 that that's, that's, that's morphine. Like that's heroin. Like I was like, Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Good to know. Yeah. Good to know. Um, so it was, I had some complications coming out that I'm still quite unaware of. Of course, multiple drain sites, that, you know, are attached to you. And there's all these, these bulbs of things that they keep squeezing liquid out of. Um, and I was, I think I was in the hospital for a full week, maybe. Um, and they're collecting your urine during that time. So it's not, this is the back to the catheter, but it's in the other spot now. Um, so they're just collecting urine and somebody has to come and empty it and measure it and do all this stuff for a number of days. And then of course, if you've ever had her surgery, they don't really let you leave until you can take a shit. So Mm. once you can go number two is when they like, okay, your intestines woke up. Everything's like, you can go now. I'm just imagining a crowd of doctors watching and clapping as you poop. No, it's very, (laughs) well, they don't have time for that. So they're definitely not in the room. (laughs) But, um, But yeah, I mean, I, within, after leaving ICU, I was then able, like, encouraged to kind of, like, walk, you know, I'd carry my IVP on a roller with me, but walk around the hospital. The more you can move, the better. Um, so I think I was out within a week. And then it was just kind of taking care of the wound sites for a while and kind of healing up. However, I'm out. I'm air quoting right now. Um, but for 90 days, your immune system is suppressed heavily. And so you're highly susceptible to getting... So anything you, that's so you don't reject the yeah so the you organ. don't reject the kidney so this yeah. is the crucial time period where they're figuring out and measuring the immune suppressant drugs like how how much can we give him that will keep the kidney from being rejected but not give him so much that he's getting sick all the time mm-hmm. so there's this balance they're trying to play with this ph level swimming pool of your body um that they're trying to navigate during that three months. And so for 90 days, I was basically at home, couldn't work, couldn't go to the office, couldn't go to church, couldn't, which was great because I never really liked going to church funny enough as a Christian. I enjoyed being a preacher because you get to perform and create. Um, but I did not, I never really liked going to church. Um, so I had these three months time off. There was like, I remember one day there was like a snowstorm, So I got in my car and like drove Brody's around an empty parking lot. Like, <laughs> um, my wife had to work. So she, and she was just really careful to try to like not be around people that were sick and then bring it home. Mm, yeah. Um, but mentally it's probably the more important thing. And, and really the mental thing happened to me more so with dialysis than finally now I have a kidney and I'm, it's not three months off because you're going to the doctor all the time. And then at the tail end of that, I ended up getting shingles, which was <laughs> a whole nother round of fucking hell. Um, it was shingles is the most painful thing I've ever been through in my entire life. And I highly recommend you get vaccinated for it as soon as you possibly can. And you're of age. Um, I had friends now that had ended up getting shingles because of the low immune system. And I had war friends going like, like, 
that have had war injuries and shrapnel stuck in their body. And they're like, shingles was the most painful thing I've ever experienced in my entire life. So like they, I can't do ibuprofen. So I can't do ever, ever like no ibuprofen because it because it moves through the kidney. So any pain medication, I can do acetaminophen, which is Tylenol because that goes through the liver. It's the same oh. reason of like why I can drink. People are like, you had a kidney transplant. You shouldn't be drinking. And I was like, no, 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 wrong organ. Like for some reason it processes through the liver, not the kidney. So I'm good with drinking. Okay. Um, That's some, yeah. Bodies are weird. Very man. strange. <laughs> and like a funny thing about a liver is a liver. You could take a piece of someone's liver. So if you get a liver transplant, they actually mm-hmm. cut a chunk off yeah. and give you that because your liver regenerates. Yeah. Which is crazy. Yeah. Like your kidneys do not do that. So yeah. If you give a kidney, you have to live with one kidney for the rest of your life. Crazy. Yeah. So after they finish the immunosuppression for like three yeah, months, that's right. that's they take you off of that. And then do you just start to bounce and back? And you just go back to your normal life. Yeah. I can't, I can't even, it's, it's hard to comprehend. Normal-ish. Normal-ish. It's hard to wrap my brain around that about like yeah. almost dying, going through dialysis for years, yeah. getting a friend's organ implanted in your body, yeah. having your immune system completely shot and then bounce back and you're good. Yeah. That's yeah. wild. It's you're good, but you're a caretaker now of this organ for the rest of your life. Ooh, like it's like a symbiont, right? Or yeah. is that, am I using that word? Correctly? Yeah. 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 You got your own little Dax in there. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so there's this thing in there that needs me to take oral medications every 12 hours on the 12 hours. Like the number one, they say that they say the number one reason people lose their transplanted organs is they forget to take their immune suppressant drugs because they're feeling so good. Immunosuppressant drugs every 12 hours, yeah. every day, every single for the day rest of your life. for the rest of my life. How do you remember? Um, I have multiple, I got an Apple watch that has helped a lot. Okay. So I have alarms set separately on the Apple watch um, and I have them on my cell phone. And then now I have a wonderful partner that, every 12 hours when the alarms go off yells drugs, <laughs> which is very helpful. Um, but there have been times where I've fallen asleep yeah. or I've forgotten to take a dose. Um, and then you go through the anxiety and that they always just tell you like, just when you wake up or when it happens, just take the dose. Um, and then do you reset your 12 hour cycle or do you go back to no, the you original? just start your original cycle again? Okay. So, so if you're three hours late, yeah. then nine hours later, you take the next one. Yep. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And it's an, and you can move your times, right? So, and when I was younger, I'm 45 now, I was 29 when I had kidney failure. I think I was 32 or 33 when I had the transplant. So, um, I, I was, I would do them at like 10 o'clock at night, 10 o'clock in the morning. Cause I would stay up late and I'd sleep in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't do that anymore. Now I take them at eight 30 in the morning and eight 30 at night yeah. because I go to bed like at nine and I'm up by like four or five. So do you like cycle back a little bit, like half an hour every day until you get it. Yeah. That's, that's how you wean it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You just move it those cycles. Yeah. Those half hours. Exactly. Yeah. So, okay. Long looking at the long term now. Yeah. Um, what are the things that you live with besides, and this is a yeah. great example, but what yeah. else do you live with consistently? So every three months I need to get a blood draw. And for them to check all these pH levels in my bloodstream, they check especially the protein, and they're checking your urine as well. Like they're looking for protein in the urine. There's also when you're when you have a kidney transplant, there's also this kind of let's call it a bug. I can't remember what the name is, but it develops in your like bladder now. So now that you have a transplanted kidney, they're also monitoring for this weird bug that you live with. Mm-hmm. 
And so if that gets out of control, then they have to do some different things. Um, and I could be totally like misspeaking it, but I know it's this also thing. They're checking the urine for protein. They're also checking it for this kind of calcification of some kind of viral something. I don't know if it's viral or whatever, but it's this weird bug they're always checking for. And they have yeah. to monitor the levels of that as well as your blood. And blood draws are very expensive. So like every time I need a blood draw without health insurance, it's about five to $800. So with health insurance, it's, you know, copay until whatever. Yeah. But so there's those. Um, also the immune suppressant drugs make you highly susceptible to UV rays. And so skin cancer is often a side effect of immunosuppressant drugs. Wow. So um, essentially, like I just went to, <laughs> I told you this a little bit earlier, but I, I just went to the um, skin doctor, dermatologist recently, went to the dermatologist and she's like, you are 100% more likely to have skin cancer than anyone else out there. So you should never be sunbathing. You should wear sunblock over 30 all the time. And you should never be in the sun between the hours of 10 and 4 p.m. So uh -huh. 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. So it's like, she's very adamant. Like, the, And you need to come to the dermatologist every year. We do, need to do check you follow, regularly. Do you follow those rules? Um, loosely, because my nephrologist, who goes to school more years than any other doctor on the planet, he's like, you live in the Pacific Northwest, you'll probably be fine like the likelihood of you having that here however if i'm out in the sun for a long period of time i number one never wear shorts it's just not my thing anyway it's not my thing anyway but um i'm I, wearing fantastic yeah shorts. you have, you always have great shorts Thank so uh, <laughs> i just have to point that yes, out. yes absolutely yeah um but always sunblock like and i use 50 or above okay so even we were in vegas visiting some friends recently and we we sung we hung out by the pool like every hour on the hour I'm putting spraying the 50 sunblock on me mm -hmm. and, um, and just, and I did not get sunburn at all. Like I laid out by the pool for a few hours in Vegas, no sunburn. It doesn't even look like I got any sun. Yeah. Um, I'm part Hispanic. Like, so that kind of helps, I think with my skin tone. So I don't get sunburned a lot. Like I'm probably a little red right now because we are on your rooftop deck kind of in the sun for a while. Yeah. Um, but it's later in the evening. So I'm not too, so I'm mindful of it. Yeah. Um, again, having a loving partner that cares for you, she's more concerned about it probably <laughs> than I am. Um, but I watch it. It's something to watch because it's the last thing I want is now cancer on top of sure. everything else. So but yeah. the mindfulness part of me is like, I can't control everything. So yeah. So you're caring for this organ and you're yeah, the symbiont caring for yourself in a way that you wouldn't have had to otherwise. Yeah. And I assume that you just get used to these things and just incorporate them into your life. That's exactly what happens. Like, yeah. um, it's just a part of who I am. So I know that I can never sleep in past eight 30 in the morning because I have to wake up at eight 30 every single morning to take yeah. these drugs. So if I yeah. wake up, the alarm goes off, I wake up, I take the drugs and I fall back asleep if I'm sleeping in. Yeah. Um, there's just, yeah, these certain things I'm oh, COVID like, I don't want us to talk about this a lot, but, yeah. um, because I think there's more important things to talk about, but that was two years of like re-triggered trauma for me. Mm. So, and for many people, not just me, but you know, I instantly like regressed to old mental patterns, gained 30 pounds, you know, after I'd lost 50 and worked really hard kind of to change my lifestyle and eating and workout regimens and all the stuff. And my nephrologist was finally excited and happy for me. <laughs> He's like, good job. You're doing it. Like, and I was like, yeah, and it feels normal. I feel like me, like for the first time. And then COVID happens and, and it's like, I couldn't go outside and die tomorrow. Like, yeah, it's not you, a cold. You're it's on, like, you are the person yeah. whose immune system is suppressed. Yes. In order to keep your organ 
Yes. They keep your body from rejecting your organ. You got to yeah. do that forever. So Yeah, and then your loved ones. Yeah, like, so COVID could COVID would be a very serious risk. Very for you. serious. Yeah. yeah. Um and then my loved ones too. I think we her and I had been together for about a year and a half maybe. Mhm. And so she's very social person, very like uh, extrovert, gets energy off of being around people. Mm. And I'm like, you literally can't do that anymore. Like, yeah. and I'm, I'm, if I need to move out, like, let me, maybe we'll get a different apartment, like we talked about. And it was just very hard for both of us. Yeah, like that's you a hard have to evaluate your life now. And I'm sorry. Like that's when I felt bad. Like, yeah, there were moments of me crying. Like I apologize. Like you should not have signed up for this. Like, <laughs> Oh man. Yeah. The, the guilt of, of being, yeah. in a, being chronically on a relationship can be very severe. Yeah. But Hey, Andy and I live in separate apartments. We love it. It's perfect. It works. Yeah, it's yeah. fantastic. It may be a thing now. She'd probably yeah. you know, be happy to be rid of my snoring. Maybe and we it, should evaluate it that. It really, it really happened because of my chronic illness, you mm. know, uh, for a bunch of reasons. Like we yeah. were living together in a place with stairs and I couldn't do it anymore. That's right. And, um, it was really hard for, I, that was at, at a point where I was really bad off. Yeah. And it was really hard for her to see me in pain all the time. Yeah. Oftentimes when I'm having a rough day, I just want the TV, my Nintendo Switch, a big glass of water and to be left alone. Yeah. So to like have to walk past that constantly, this yeah. like, you know, this person kind of existing yes. in pain uh, was really difficult for her. Yeah. And and for me, it's like, I don't want to be bothered in that moment. Totally. You know, so uh, getting our own space has you know, we, we live in two apartments on the same floor of an yeah. apartment building. And, uh, and a, a huge factor for it as well is that when my mobility became more and more limited, I needed to be in a small space. Right. So like my ability to take care of myself was, um, significantly improved by living in a studio Yeah. and she lives, you know, on That's the same amazing. floor in a, in a, uh, one bedroom. And, um, yeah, it's, a, it, it really helped our relationship, you know, it's like really taught us how to live in concert with my chronic illness in a way where it now just feels like it's the two of us together instead of the three of us with my chronic illness being yeah. like this third person that is kind of, you know, this annoying third party in the relationship. I'm fascinated by it. And like, I don't know, we probably won't be able to get into it now, but I'm in more interested in talking about it because honestly, probably for a lot of couples, that would be a better situation and their relationships would be better off. Yeah. But societally we live together. So yeah. Well, you know what? Like every night is a choice of whether or not we sleep in the same bed together oh, and yeah. which, which apartment we sleep in. Right. Uh, and we sleep together uh, at least, I would, I would say probably about half the time. Yeah. Um, and then mo a, a lot of time we will just like hang out one of our apartments, cuddle up, watch Frasier. We're about yep. to fall asleep. And then the one of us will go to, to our home and we'll sleep Strad separate. Down the hall. Yeah, yeah. And like, if one of us has to get up early or something right. or... You know, we, we talked about it on the podcast, but Andy just went through COVID recently. And because I don't have a diagnosis, I just assume that I'm at high risk. Right. So we, you know, we had two apartments to isolate in. Right. And it, I'm just thinking about it in your scenario, because um, it's so it's so tough when one person has to make a sacrifice yeah. that the other person then has to make because of illness. Yes. You know, that's very difficult. Yeah. But if you, but with creative thinking, there are, there are, um, infinite ways to live yeah it's i mean there's another way to think of it too like i have a living breathing litmus test of do you actually love me 
Like, <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> that sounds. It sounds. That I'm sounds unhealthy. Joking. I'm kind of joking. Um, but someone from coming from so much PTSD and past religious trauma, yeah, like to some extent, that's like I before we really got serious. I t- she knew about the chronic illness, but I was like, we even had conversations. Like, if I end up on dialysis again, what does that look like for you? How does that make you feel? Like. Mm. What and I don't I and I and I coming from what I already lived through, never watching what that did to my ex wife, I never want to put somebody through that again. Sure. And I feel like now I did not have the mental, sp- spiritual whatever strength at the time to do that alone. Where I feel like I've grown and developed now, to where I feel like if I had to do this alone, I could do the dialysis life alone. It wouldn't be you know, it would be, I would be okay with it because this is my life hmm. and I'd be able to mentally be able to handle it. Now I have enough tools and I've healed enough to where I, I do I want to No, I don't think anybody wants to do it alone, yeah. but I also would not want to put that on somebody to where, especially, you know, my partner, Meredith, she has a wonderful career. She's very good at it. She needs to keep doing it. She'll probably be famous and my sugar mama at some point. Um, <laughs> that's a joke. Uh, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully that's a joke. Uh, but I wouldn't want her to stop doing that because yeah. of me. So yeah. I think it's always on the table. It's always an important conversation piece. I always feel like because I bring a chronic illness to the table that I need to make sure that the rest of my relationship game is is buttoned up tight i want to make sure that i'm bringing my best self to the relationship because i'm bringing this this weight that that is not my choice but it is in some ways my responsibility because it's my body that's good um do you have any thoughts like that i i think i've just felt really positively challenged by you saying that like (laughs) i think that's a i think that's a a really good realization to have. And I think I could improve on that mm. a lot. I mean, generally I'm generally healthy. Like I'm, I'm, I, that's why I'm saying I'm lucky to have a diagnosis because what a diagnosis gives you is a plan. Yeah. You know? And so the, I can't imagine what you've gone through where you don't have a diagnosis. You don't have a plan. I had a friend that struggled with chronic fatigue syndrome and doctors were telling him it was fake and yeah. it was all in his head. Yeah. And then he finally found a doctor that was like, no, this is fucking real. And yeah. here's how we combat this. And now give, he's able to live his life. Give your friend my number. I'd love to have him on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> for sure. I will. I will. For sure. And it's, it's like, so when, when you have a plan, it makes everything easier. And so I think the fact that you have a plan relationally, I don't think I've ever, you know, we are, our, our, my relationship with Meredith now has been three years. I think we're getting to that point now. We're like, this relationship is a choice and we should start making good choices for this relationship as mm. opposed to it just being out of like love. And, you know, I mean, you always have love, but you know what I mean? Where it's like early on, you're just like acting out of all this stuff and you're like the perfect man or the yeah. perfect partner because you're just doing it out of love and care. Yeah. And now, you know, her and I like to joke that every, every month, during COVID was like adding three years to our relationship. <laughs> so although we've been in a relationship for three years, it's like really three times 24, you know? Yeah. So however many years that is, and we don't want to kill each other. We don't hate each other. We're refiguring out what that relationship is. Um, there is no post COVID for someone like me. So I was just thinking that. Yeah. yeah. It's so, like, this just changed your life forever. Yeah. And they're, they're, I feel more comfortable now to be in your home. We COVID tested before this yeah. to record this. Yeah. Be- not just because of vaccinations. Um, I did, you know, the two basic vaccinations, then got both boosters very early on. 
And then they talked to me recently about something called Evusheld, which is this lab-created antibodies that they can inject in you. And I was first very resistant to it because I was like, okay, I, the FDA approved this in a six month hurry up. Like the FDA approves for us to eat at McDonald's. So <laughs> like, I'm not so sure about this. Yeah. And so I went home, thought about it, did as much reading as I possibly could. And I was like, if this helps me get back to a normalish life, I should really do this. Mm-hmm. So I went and did it and they're very, not large needles, but large amount of cc's of liquid that they're putting into your bloodstream that are immediately effective and have basically tell your body that you had covid you had it but you don't you had no symptoms yeah, no I've nothing heard about this yeah. like i'd only heard of the vaccines it's this is e-v-u-s-h-e-l-d so the, the difference being like a vaccine uh just tells your body to make antibodies yeah but this is like we're just directing the, like, we're just injecting the straight yeah. up antibodies. We're telling your body that you had COVID. Yeah. So the challenge with that is, is, you know, is these viruses transform and mutate. Yeah. I'm going to need to do this. They're going to make new formulas for every strain. I'm, there's going to be times like where them making formulas in the current strain or behind the times I'm going to have to lock down again. Hmm. And so that's just Ugh. a part of my life forever. Yeah. So wow. Eventually we will st- to, we will all get it. I will get it at some point to some extent. That's to me mentally. I'm just kind of going, that's like my initial diagnosis. At least now I know I got it. And I now know if I'm going to live or die with it, you know? So oh. to some extent it gives me some peace that I'll eventually get it. And that'll be an interesting test of what's next, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, how does it make you feel that like all the public mitigations have been lifted? Yeah. I, it, it I must be so difficult you know, I, to travel or, or, to go out or do much. Of I anything. will say this. I, I am a straight, straightish, mostly straight man who's white, looks white and lives in America. Hmm. So I really have never had any reason to feel like a minority or to feel like somebody's, the government's not taking care of my needs until now. Like the, with, with the restrictions and the way people reacted, to the restrictions, I'm constantly, being bombarded without my consent of a virus that somebody else could pass to me and they don't give a shit about asking permission. <laughs> like yeah. you, the fact that it was very triggering for me to go out and see people not in masks when the mandate said, wear a mask or people not policing it. I would often get triggered because it felt like you were violating my body without my permission mm-hmm. and you were breaking a law to do it. Fuck you. You know, I still feel very, it's upsetting. And so that was hard. Um, but the next process then was like, I've done as much as I can. I've got the vaccines. I've now got like some antibodies in my bloodstream. I've done, I'm going to do the best I can on my side. And so then the rest is just kind of that mindfulness practice and that life of like, I have to let this go. I cannot control the outcomes and the behaviors of other people. Yeah. And so and it's only hurting me to get triggered and upset and mad about this. And, and one of the things is I, I have friends that are activists and I value them so much. And the reason I value them is because I am not the type of person who can live under that activist energy. Like they live in a fight and many people do too. Many minorities and, and, and LGBTQ community or people that have, have gone through things, they're constantly on the defensive because they have to be, it's their life. And I, I am 
a hundred percent to say, I'm not strong enough to live that way. Mm. And it's so difficult for me to live out of that triggered state of guardianship. Your strength lies in other places. Yes. That, thank you. That's a very wonderful way to say it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I, it's hard. So I have to let it go. Otherwise I will be angry, hurt, mad, upset all the time Yeah. and project that onto other people. And that's like the last thing I want to do. When in this process, this is out of left field. When, when in this process did you leave the church? That's a really good question. Um, Post transplant. Yeah. So I had three years of dialysis. I'm pretty sure it was three years. I think it was three years. Three years of dialysis where very eye opening because you took a 20 year old, arrogant, over six figure public speaker who had a level of fame in a certain circle and you told him he can't move for 12 hours a week and this is now dictating your life. Mm. So. At the time, I called it like, which is a bit, a bit Buddhist, a bit like Eastern thought of like, oh, these are the three stages of the cross of of my ego. Like, this is me losing my life, like Jesus said. Like, in order to find your life, you have to lose your life. So, it was it was a huge shock to my ego, but it was a refreshing, like, for the first time, I actually enjoyed dialysis more than going to church. Because the people in dialysis were who they were. There were no fakeness at all. We are all in one boat. It was like, I looked at it like Cheers, like the television show. <laughs> like, everybody knows your name. Yeah. When you walk in, it's like, hey, Beverly. Yeah. Hey, Bob. <laughs> like, hey, Sue. You know, it's like you're going to the different chairs and all the nurses know you. And, you know, because I was a pastor at the time, and now I look at it, it had nothing to do with me being a pastor, but the energy I project nurses knew they had me captivated in a place where I couldn't move for four hours. So they would come to me for counseling or want to talk something out and I would empathetically listen. And, and I enjoyed it because I felt like this is what real life feels like. And my greatest desire that I started to pull into was I just want to be normal. I don't want to live on this weird religious stage. That, that question that I said at the beginning of the podcast, there's the callback of like, there has to be more than this. Mm-hmm that ramped up during my time on dialysis because I started to realize, Ooh, there's life outside this. There is something else. Yeah. And so that was the stage there. And then after transplant, I became an activist and I was like, I can change this community. Like I can change this religious entity. I can change this church to be something different. Interesting. I can, I can show compassion and empathy and love. Like, and I can speak to it like no one else can. This is so interesting, especially after just saying that you don't have the, uh, the fight to be an activist, Yeah, but you know that from experience because you've tried. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Keep going. Keep going. And, um, so it's, that was, I realized after two years that this is a machine bigger than me. And this is a machine driven by money and money's the only driver. So unless, unless it means more money, they're not going to change. The story's not going to change. The narrative's not going to change. They're going to preach the theology that brings in the most money and makes the people committed, dedicated, and happy. That's horrifying. Yeah. So that's when I was like, I'm now living a lie. I need to pull the ripcord. Like, I need to get out. I can't be here. I can't portray this lie because I know what the wizard is behind the curtain. I know what this is now. And, and so I had to get out and then it was just a process of exiting. Um, 
and essentially losing everything. So the second stage of the ego cross, I lost over six figure income overnight. I got blacklisted and blackballed from all the speaking engagements that I had lined up for the next year. Um, And I became in many ways, like I had close friends. One of my close friends said, Oh, I was sorry. I wasn't there for like your last sermon. Um, I'm really sorry. I had to go out of town or whatever. And I was like, Rob, like I'm not dead. Yeah. Like I, live across the street from the church. Like we can hang out at any time. And to him, that was like this crazy thought, like what <laughs> we can, <laughs> Yeah, you know? So yeah. And then it was refiguring out life. I mean, those, I think those transitions that I live to help people like through now with writing or whatever it ends up being speaking and podcasts and is like, you can make big life changes and the, the reality is with every life change, and this is for everyone, with every change we make in life, grief is a part of that and mourning is a part of that. Because no matter what it is, you're losing something. We always lose when we grow. Like you lose your favorite shoes when you're a kid because you grew out of them. You know, you're just like, I can't, they don't make these for adults. Like I can't wear these kangaroos. And now they do because they realize they would make a lot of money if they sold us our childhood <laughs> yeah, shoes. But, but the sentiment is good. But yeah, yeah, yeah. The, sentiment so the story that what I'm yeah. trying to say is like grief is just a part of that process. And when you learn that that can be something you can work through, you're just like, okay, like I can do this. I can change. I can do something. Um, and, and I will say this, like, like that social worker said, community makes everything easier. Hmm. So that's one of the reasons why I did the podcast losing our religion early on, because when you start having the thoughts that I had in an entity, like I was in, you start to think you're crazy yeah, and that there's something wrong with me. Cause there's no one else to bounce these ideas off. of. Yes. There's yeah. nobody safe that you can talk to. Hmm. And if I bring this up, I'm going to be like fired. I'm going to lose my income. I mean, it's the golden handcuffs. It's why, people work corporate jobs they hate for years because they think, well, what else could I possibly do to make this income? So I'm just going to hate it and struggle through. I hate that. Like that's not living. So it, I had to, you know, I had multiple, many pastors from large churches with huge incomes quietly talk to me Mm. about how could you give up all that money? And I'm like, at the time, because I was still a Christian, I was like, God or money, bro. Like, yeah. God has the ultimate resource of everything we ever need. You're just talking about a paycheck, but they were never able to make the shift. So, I mean, and that was, I could, I could talk about that forever. Like Jesus even addresses this of like, you're not serving me. You never loved me. You love something else. Go to hell forever. You know, <laughs> like, uh, so, I mean, it's at the end of Matthew, read it. It's shocking and horrifying. I, I can't imagine the disillusionment of seeing that this thing that, is preaching faith yeah. that you have faith in yep. discovering that it is all about profit. Yeah. Profit and control. Really. Yeah. But this is this, you know, <clears throat> mega church that you come from. Yeah. Do you have a frame of reference about like other smaller churches or yeah. just like Christianity outside of this church? Yeah. 100%. Do you have a feeling? Do you have a feeling about that? Well, that's why I say I don't hate religion. I just hate theocracy and dogma. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I think there, there, and I have Christ, I have friends that still call themselves Christians to this day that are wonderful human beings that essentially just portray and exemplify love. Yeah, we're never probably able to be as close as we once were 
because they have a hard time. They, they can't shift the narrative. Like they can't, you know, um, I was once told, I don't remember, and I'm probably going to forget it and tell it wrong, but I, I once heard somebody say the ultimate sign of selfishness is when you're looking at someone who is struggling and your response is, man, I'm glad that that's not me. Mm. Like, and I, I think that a lot of, there's always something in the brain of somebody that like, man, Zach's, you know, he's a great guy and I love him. I'm going to show him love, but he's really fucking off his rocker. Like <laughs> <laughs> he's really going to hell, you know, yeah. I just imagine that's going on, but you know, maybe yeah. it's not, and maybe I'm projecting it. And so that's what I go with it. And that's where I'm just like, as long as you're in a happy, healthy community that is not toxic and using you for their own gain, like more power to you. Like that's yeah. what we all want. That's why we want families and why we want community. And we all want that. So if you can get it and religion's attached to it and you're okay with that, then fucking you're living the dream (laughs) 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 in a capitalist society that wouldn't really allow you to do it otherwise, but religion stays tax free. So man, I, so I heard your first episode of losing our religion where you told Oh yeah, the story, right? But I feel like I got so much more detail today. You like, did. Well, I you really got growth. You got a different. That was 2015. It's 2022 yeah. now. That's so. Tr- I keep yeah. forgetting how we've known each other for a little while now. So because COVID just feels like you know, Ugh. like I haven't seen you in a couple of years. Yeah. Um, when you said four years, have we not seen each other for? I was like, whoa, it I don't really be that long. Well, okay, Andy and I have been together for like five and a half, and you said you met her briefly. Yeah, you guys were together when we first met. So so that was the last time I saw you. When was that? I don't know. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> um, it's just, I, you know, this whole idea of you being this like spiritual sailor. Yeah. I can see that you have traveled down river since I've last seen you. Oh, yeah. And, and even more so since I last heard this story, which was on your podcast. Yeah. Um, but it's... It's just so interesting how, you know, you can grow up with something and then leave it and reject it. Yeah. But then as you get older, be nostalgic for it. Yes. And then reintegrate pieces of it into who you are. Yep. And I can, I feel that having happened with you a little bit. Yeah. I feel like, and this is what, like I said, I've got three books that I really am, am planning out to write and I don't want to share too much, but one of them is this idea of the pendulum. And like our lives are very much like a pendulum. And if we look at every human being at the end of the day, what each of us is seeking is balance. Mm -hmm. And so we swing one way or the other. And I was actually very pissed because my youth pastor at the time when I was leaving church, he's like, Oh, it's, you know, you're just a pendulum. You're going to swing the other way for a while, but you'll come back to us. And I was like, (laughs) fuck you. I will never come back to this piece of shit. Narcissistic shithole like (laughs) obviously i feel very passionate about it still to this day um but in a sense he was right you know it's like um i look at the stages of coming out of something of so so traumatic and your first response is this is the evil of all evils and so i need to be an activist to make sure this doesn't happen to anybody else so i need to change this thing and then you start to realize i can't change this fucking thing and if i could it would have been done by now Like they could do it on Star Trek. I don't know how they fucking did it. It's probably not going to happen in my lifetime. It's going to be years of evolution. And then you start to realize like, oh, like maybe there were some things there that were really helpful to me. And maybe I should reevaluate those things. So you start to turn and the pendulum, you start to find balance. 
Yeah. And I think I'm much more balanced now than I was when you and I first met. Yeah. And I'm much more at home with who I am and that I don't have to have a home of where I am. Like that is my home. Like yeah. in my life, there are no strangers. So I think I said early on, like one of my early mentors, both of my early mentors both killed themselves, Kurt Cobain and, and Anthony Bourdain. But Anthony Bourdain in particular, um, just watching his shows, obviously I didn't know him personally, but he, through food, he was trying to get conversation of like, here is how we can be respectful and peacemakers with one another. Like here's how we can enter each other's lives in a way that is safe. Mm. And like, that's what I, like that's the ultimate love for me is like, how can we do that? As more as the world keeps polarizing, we need people that will hold the bridge. Like, and I hope to be a person that holds the bridge yeah. to create some kind of conversation I love for that. people to do that. And the only way you can do that is by not having an anchor. <laughs> wow. Like you have amazing. to be at sale constantly yeah. and be curious because yeah. if you're not curious, you don't listen. And that's the biggest thing. It's like, if we don't have an innate curiosity of like what makes, you know, Jesse Mercury, Jesse Mercury, if I'm not curious about that, then the whole time you're talking, I'm not actually listening. I'm getting, preparing my response. Mm. So I, you have to actually care and want to know like, yeah. or, or selfishly, like, what is he going to share with me right now that is going to change my life and make my life better? Mm. Like that I can, that I can be a pirate and either, or, or not be a pirate. I can ask permission. Like, can I take this from your Island and, add it to my island or my boat or be a pirate and just take it without telling them and just adding it to your life. If you can, I mean, not without consent, I'm not meaning that, but a value or something internally, you know, yeah. it's that um, shattered mirror thing. But yes, if you pick up pieces of glass from a hundred shattered mirrors and yeah. make a beautiful mosaic with it, it could be something that, yeah. you know, something, it could be a work of art that, that people would love to look at. Absolutely. Yeah. And the world I think now more than ever, at least in my lifetime, needs people that will hold the bridge and not burn it down. Yeah. The so. the ability to believe something different from someone else, but still listen, yes. understand, respect, and and allow that yeah. person to exist in their in their difference from you. Yeah. Like that's crucial. And, and I feel able, like we yeah. I feel like our culture is forgetting how to do that. We and it have. scares me. And it's very scary. And to be, to genuinely say after that interaction or the, or really to genuinely not say, man, I'm glad that's not me. Mm. Right. Just to walk away from it and go, man, I'm glad that's not me. Yeah. Walk away from like, it and go, I'm really glad that this thing works for that person. Yeah. Yeah. Or even like whatever that evolution of that is like, I'm glad they found their home. Yeah. Like I'm glad the they found the thing that brought them peace. Yeah. You know, I'm upset that, that they want, me to have to be exactly the same or my friends to have to be exactly the same, but I'm glad they found theirs. Yeah. You know, and I, this is where the mystical part probably comes in. I have this strange belief that, and it's just a narrative and it makes me happy. So leave it the fuck alone. Like <laughs> that we all have these journeys and you know, I like Neil deGrasse Tyson or the scientific idea of like, we never cease to exist. We become space dust or whatever that is. Our essence is still healing and rebuilds and, you know what your soul is on a journey i like that idea so it's like they're in their place now and they're wrestling with something inside that's making them project this to the world i don't know what that is but i know that's their place right now and that's where they're at right now so i'm going to just honor where they're at and 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 know that their souls on a journey and it will progress mm.
Well, I have one more question for you. Okay. So let's get a little sci-fi with it. So, you know, we're both huge Star Trek fans. Yes. Love a good time travel story. Yes. If you right now in this moment could time travel back and talk to yourself in the hospital yeah. on day one when you, when you had kidney failure, um, if you could give yourself a piece of information that might make your journey a little bit smoother, wow. what would it be? That's a, you're going to have to edit out a long pause here. <laughs> it's no problem. Um, I would have told myself, this is the beginning of the life you've always wanted. Wow. Because that's legitimately what it has been. Like, it's been a rebirth. And I will gladly, wow, I'm very emotional about this right now. I will gladly carry the scars. And I will gladly carry the weight of having to take these drugs. I will gladly carry the possible side effects and the rest of the crazy things to be able to have the transformation that happened because of that kidney fire. Like in the, even the loss, like everything I've lost, marriage, family, very good friends. Um, like it's all worth it mm. to be able to transform your life into actually and maybe it's just a sense of freedom of like, I'm calling the shots to some extent. Like I can live the life that I want to live. I can make the choices. There's going to be repercussions for all these choices. There's going to be pain and there's going to be grief to go through. But I can make a change in my life if I, if I need to. Wow. And when you're under a chronic illness, you are forced to change. Mm -hmm. And for many of us, that is the only way we change. And I hope that we can progress and maybe we can learn to change without something horrific happening to us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just don't know. I don't know what that magic button. I mean, I guess we're all doing it, but I, it also then holds this wonderful value of human suffering. Yeah. So it's like, now I can appreciate suffering because there's always something wonderful that comes out of it. And I know many people hearing that are like, you're full of shit. You're a straight white guy in America. You do not know my suffering. And I'm like, you're right. But there's, I feel like there's two trajectories we can go. And you, I watch this in dialysis. You have the bitter and the angry patients. And what they're doing is they're fighting against their reality instead of just embracing it, getting on the boat and seeing where the ship takes them. Mm -hmm. And then there's those that surrender and go, this is my lot. This is what I got. Like, these are the cards. Let's figure out how to do it with those cards. And you go one way or the other. <laughs> that gives me two thoughts. One, if you go back and tell yourself this is the beginning of, of the change that you want. Yeah. I wonder if you'd believe you. Yeah, great question. Oh, man. And two, um, I think that's just a really powerful statement about chronic illness in general. Mm. That when you first become sick or the flare-up starts or the kidney fails it feels like your life is over. Yeah. It just like, it's like, this is a delineation in my life. Yes. Where nothing will be the same and everything will be worse. Yep. And, and that is not necessarily true. Well, or it is. Your life is over. Your life as you knew it is over. Mm -hmm. And the sooner we get to a place of recognizing that, the sooner we can embrace whatever the new adventure is. Yeah. And I've said yeah. so many times that I like myself more now because of my oh, chronic illness 100%. than I did before. Yeah. Like I've changed a lot Ugh. and you know, we, we haven't seen each other yeah. since, bef since like 
the very beginning of my health flare up, yeah. you know, um, like we, we caught up yeah. hanging on the roof, COVID testing before yep. we recorded. That's right. And like, you haven't, you never saw me use a wheelchair. Yeah, I didn't. And, and you, you're here today on a day where I'm doing really great. Yeah. And I've been on an upswing recently Yeah, and I've been on my feet and it's been awesome. And, uh, but I've been through so much yeah. since I last saw you, <laughs> like it's, to quote the Bible, you've been through the Valley of the shadow of death yeah, and you will fear evil <laughs> <laughs> and misquoting it, but, and go through it and make it. It was just so weird to see you today and feel like no time had passed in a way, yeah, except 100%. like we've both been through so much yeah, because you know, COVID for you has been very difficult. Yep. Uh, and I've been through this bizarre health journey Yeah, and you know, I, and here we are, maybe a little bit better for it. A lot better. Your, I can like my energy is completely different than the last time we saw each other. So yeah. is yours. Like, yeah. there's, it's completely different. You're hundred percent right. Yeah, yeah. I'm so excited. Fascinating. You're, you could be close to a prognosis. Like, I'm so excited for you. Yeah, like we'll this see. is a big, big thing. Well, and you know what? What I'm thinking recently is like, even if we don't get the actual yeah. diagnosis. The fact that we have found medication that's helping. Yes. And I've continued to get better and better. Yep. Um, that's enough. Yeah. I'd love to get a, I'd love to put a stamp on it. Yep. I'd love to put a name on it, tie it up in a bow. Yes. Put it in my closet and forget about it. But, yeah. <laughs> but if I can't do that, if it, if it's just like, you know, get out of the flare up, like yeah. that was the original goal Yeah. years and years ago. And to, to put that back on the table as a potential reality is, yeah is really exciting and to come through it so different than I was before. Yeah. Um, more grounded and more appreciative and happier. Yeah. It's weird. It is. It's like, why is this the way that life works? The crazy thing is, and now you are set up for such, you have such an experience that so many people live life that don't have. You now have something under your belt that you know, you've lived through, mm. you know, I, this is, I was just diagnosed with a very strange virus that they originally thought was a STI and which freaked me the fuck out because I'm like, this doesn't match the timeline of me and my monogamous partner. <laughs> <laughs> so this is going to be interesting. They found out it's not an STI and it's actually uh, a virus that a, a child would have gotten. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm having to deal with dealing with that because but you have a suppressed immune because system. Because I have suppressed immune system. Yeah. And the lifestyle of continually these type of things probably showing up or happening. You know, the pandemic is one, but like this reality. So it was, it was so funny because it, as soon as I get this diagnosis, you're like, okay. <laughs> but then you're like, meh, what's this compared to kidney failure? <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. You, you start thinking your way through it instead of getting bogged yeah, down in it. It's the same reason people do cold shower therapy or Wim Hof, right? Or it's this, it's this preparing the body for this freak out so that you build up this endurance of like, no, 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 this is, a, we can get through this. Like, yeah. there's something to it that, that people that have never had a chronic illness may never know. And so it's, it's a superpower really. Like, yeah. Well, part of my hope with this podcast is yeah. to give, give those people a sense of it. Yes. You know, and so good. It's every conversation on the show is amazing. I knew you were going to be great, but uh, you, you exceeded my expectations. I today. mean, I, I what a conversation. This was awesome. <laughs> I just want to, I want to thank you for asking me to do this because there's things that came out of me today that felt magical to me. Mm. 
and I didn't even know it was there. Yeah. So this opportunity that you gave me to to do this was really wonderful. It's well, how many times time. have you podcasted sober? Not very often. <laughs> you're, you're great at it. Yeah, I could do it sober. That's a great and point. Someone uh, <laughs> told me recently that I had a really great podcast voice. Yeah, you do. You have a great we podcast voice. Yeah, yeah, because we're sitting here with headphones on, with yeah. like you know, I got the compressors and the yeah. noise gate going, so we got really good sound in our headphones. Yeah, and it, your your voice is so pleasing. Yeah, it's been a it's been a, it's been great. Let's end, can I end on this joke? Yes. So because of that, um, some of what I do for for work now is I uh, I coach content creators all over the globe. So it's virtual, um, and I work for Amazon doing this. Um, I was with one in another country, and they kept asking for like kind of verbal affirmation. So I was like, oh yeah. Yeah, you're doing a great job. <laughs> like, and you already know where I'm going. My girlfriend is like, you sound like a sex phone operator right now. And I'm like, I'm like oh, I was just trying to be encouraging. That's you know? some ASMR right there. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> tell us where we can go to find you online. Anything you'd like to plug? Um, I would say the easiest place is uh, probably Instagram. Um, mind soul alchemy is my new tag name. <laughs> it used to be my full name, but it's just confusing for people. And I think I kind of landed on this mind soul alchemy because I, I, this soul sailor thing, I just can't get away from. Yeah. Um, so it's, that's my tag name for now. I mean, you can, my, uh, easy website for kind of like some MC work and stuff I do is zackgandra.com, Z-A-C-G-A-N-D-A-R-A.com. Um, so you could, you could find me at other place. Instagram is probably, or social media is probably the easiest. I'm going by Zachary Pike now. Yeah. What's um, the story with that? It's a, it's a, it's a pen name. Oh, nice. Yeah. Like I going through what I've gone through and, and, and knowing I need to write and get this out of me. Um, I, I needed some kind of a cathartic release to let the person inside of me out mm -hmm. that, that needs to get this stuff out. And I, the name change just did it for me. Yeah. Like for some reason it was like a fresh start and, um, I'm not changing my legal name that I know of anytime soon, but, but this idea of like Zachary Pike is so meaningful to me and Pike funny enough comes from Star Trek, Captain yeah. Pike. Right. Um, but it also comes from the street I grew up on just a block away from most of my adult life in Seattle, which is Pike street. <laughs> so I was like, as soon as I heard Zachary Pike, I was like, this sounds like me, feels like me. This is me. And Pike street was the street that welcomed me when I left Christianity. Mm. I became a hot dog vendor at a punk rock dive bar and learned about drugs and sex and rock and roll in a whole new way than I've ever thought possible. And so it's such a big part of my therapeutic life so Zachary Pike just is the new name. Yeah. And I can't find the user tags for it. So mind soul alchemy it is. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> I feel that. I mean, Jesse Mercury yes. is my stage name. I probably got that. I definitely got that vibe yeah. from you because there's something about it. It's like you can move outside of yourself to your true self. Well, I, I originally changed, I originally created a stage name to play sci-fi synth pop music <laughs> and I wanted to be able to do it in like a sort of like, you know, character, this person right. from the year 3000. Uh, but it just became the name that I release all of my creative work under. And wow. and it also, like, there's an element of, uh, you know, my birth name is now what I use in my private life. 
Wow. And I really like that. Yeah. Uh, I really like it a lot. So That's a great feeling. I, I support that. 100%. I love it. Um, and then, of course, there's the whole back catalog of Losing Our Religion, which is a fantastic it's podcast. It's still out there. It'll be yeah. there forever, I guess, until I stop paying the, yeah. the fees to and have it out there. You, we talked before recording, you mentioned that you might do a final episode at some point. There will, for sure, be a final episode at some yeah. point. Call and then it. hopefully a new podcast. Yeah. And hopefully there's a couple of ideas burning around. Yeah. We'll see what happens. But the, the, last, the last episode of Losing Our Religion will be my last sermon ever. This has been amazing. What an incredible episode of the show. I'm so grateful for your time and for sharing your story and for coming over. And, you know, it's great to see you. It's so cool to be able to talk in person. Thank you. uh, And to be able to, you know, pick your brain a little bit about this period in your life that happened before I met you. And I've had some burning questions about, you know, that I, I had listened to your podcast episode and felt like i had the full picture but i realized today how much more there was to know and uh, it's it's absolutely fascinating and i also you. just learned a ton about what happens when someone goes through kidney failure so yeah um yeah i really appreciate this podcast would have been invaluable to me in that state and i didn't, i luckily had a good friend but yeah that's what for doing this. that's what i want is this to be that you know that good friend for anyone who needs yeah. it who's going through something i want to cover as many diseases as possible yeah so that anyone who's out there searching for like what do I do when I have gout, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah. Um, has, has a place to turn with a friendly voice who's been through it. Perfect. Yeah. It's, it's been amazing, Zach. Thank you Thank so much. You. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Brooke Walters-Schmidt, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Danielle Signorelli, Alexandria Henderson, and Justin Minnick. And our $25 per month producers, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash majorpain podcast.